then you gonna be niggas forever, just like us, niggas. You're not niggas. It was both exciting but heartbreaking news for a Southern California family. They learned that one of their patriarchs was one of the region's pioneers. A mountain in the Santa Monica Mountains was named after John Ballard, but the name of the mountain was N-Word Mountain. Ryan Ballard is John Ballard's great-grandson. People have had to negotiate these terrible instances throughout their lives. It wasn't new trauma. For some, it may seem like, oh my goodness, it's horrific. But, you know, that's just part of the American story. And it's not really a pleasant part of the American story, but it is it's part of truth. Each person has a responsibility for accepting truth, no matter how hard it is to swallow. But people came together to right the wrong. The now mostly forgotten story started in the late 2000s. Paul and Leah Kohlberg lived near the mountain, which is west of Highway 101 near Canaan Road in the Agoura Hills area. They decided to appeal to then-Los Angeles County Supervisor Xavier Oslowski for help. My friend Nick Knoxon, who is gone now, he and I got together and we really wanted to see if we could do something about it. And it was Black History Month. Zev was having a gathering at the field office in Calabasas. So I pinned him down at this, at this event and I said, Zev, I think this is right up your alley. And he pulled out a pencil and a piece of paper and he started writing. Then there was a key coincidence. Moore Park College professor and local historian Patty Coleman was doing research for the Santa Monica Mountains National Recreation Area. She discovered that an African-American family moved to the mountains in the 1880s. I was able to, to trace back to when I believe the family first arrived in Los Angeles and a little bit about their context and all of that. Then I did a talk for the National Park Service. I talked about the Ballards. Nick Knoxon, who is no longer with us, he's passed away, came up to me and said, I think that this is the person that we've we've kind of been looking for. He And then he kind of told me about he and Paul and Leah Kohlberg, how they had been, you know, working on this this mountain that had this horrible name. Along the way, she discovered that John Ballard was a true Southern California pioneer. He was one of the founders of L.A.'s famous First AME Church, and he voted as soon as some discriminatory voting laws were changed. Then the media provided an unexpected boost to the name change effort. That was picked up by the Los Angeles Times and published his picture. That's when Ryan Ballard and his siblings and his father read the the article and said, wait a minute, I think this might be our family. Coleman set up a meeting at Moore Park College, and more than a dozen members of the Ballard family came and learned more about John Ballard. It was decided to pursue renaming the mountain after John Ballard. Paul and Leah Kohlberg says things then moved quickly. It's the fastest renaming of a geographic location in the history of the USGS. What's it like for you guys to look out there and see that mountain and know that you helped right or wrong. It's wonderful. It really is. You know, it's, it's, it still kind of chokes me up. This is a family that has been in Los Angeles for five generations. John Ballard's great-great-grandson, Ryan Ballard. What's it like for you and your family now to know that there's a mountain, that you guys have a mountain named after your family, which is pretty cool? It is pretty cool. It is absolutely exciting. We've always been a family who recognizes our place in the world. We're no better than anybody else, but we're certainly no worse. We're a part of this, the landscape of 
America, of Southern California. Now a new documentary tells the story of the man behind the mountain and how people came together to change its name. It actually started out with a social media post in 2020 for Juneteenth. And I did it on John Ballard. It got a great response. And it sounded like a lot of people, locals, weren't aware of the story. Anna Beatrice Chola with the National Park Service wrote and produced to write wrong the story of Ballard Mountain. A group of folks came together. They thought that this was not right, and they wanted to right this wrong. And then it's also a piece of history from the Santa Monica Mountains. Ryan Ballard says it's important that the story be told and remembered. It's just really a part of the American story. It's not always a pretty story, but it, we can make good from it. Lance Roscoe, KCLU News. Democrats in North Carolina have nominated Harvey Gant as their candidate for the Senate. If he defeats incumbent Jesse Helms, Gant would become the state's first black senator. 1990 North Carolina Senate race. You have the infamous Jesse Helms and an African-American by the name of Harvey Gantt. Jesse Helms can take full credit or blame for killing a new national African-American museum. Helms also stood against the Martin Luther King holiday. I'm not saying to you that we wouldn't have segregated schools or largely segregated schools under a freedom of choice plan, such as I've suggested. But I will say to you that uh, that would be the choice. Conservative incumbent Jesse Helms won a fourth term, defeating liberal black Harvey Gantt. There's no joy in Mudville tonight. Gantt was not bitter in defeat, but this contest proves that race is still a powerful issue in American politics. In 1965, Frederick Alexander became the first African American on the Charlotte City Council in the 20th century. Harvey Gantt was elected the city's first black mayor 18 years later in 1983. Now, a generation later, black leaders hold many of the most important positions in Mecklenburg County and city government, both elected and appointed. As part of WFAE's series on race and equity this week, reporter Steve Harrison looks at how black leaders have risen to power and whether their leadership has created more equity for residents. 20 years ago, the city of Charlotte saw itself like a private company. It talked about efficiency and, quote, providing value to the customer. Former city attorney Mac McCarley says, We moved from calling things departments to calling them key businesses. And if you were the department head, you became the key business executive. Today's city does not think of itself as a business. It has a new agenda social justice, equity, inclusion. It's a change due to the city overall becoming more liberal and to black politicians and administrators assuming the reins of power. Stephanie Sneed, the chair of the Charlotte-Mecklenburg Black Political Caucus, says black leaders are needed to try to repair what has happened in systemic racism and that you start to see acknowledgement of these things and how these, how systemic racism has had a generational impact. African-Americans have now won five of the last six Charlotte mayoral elections. The city manager is black, as is the police chief, the fire chief, the leader of the transit system. The chair of the county commission is black, as is the health director and county attorney. Half of the county's judges are black. Same for the superintendent of the school system and the sheriff. Spencer Merriweather was elected in 2018 as the county's first black district attorney. You have some folks 
have asked the question, well, does every position uh, in Mecklenburg County have to be held by an African-American or Latino in this community? And uh, certainly not. He was talking about the 2018 Comedy Central show hosted by Jordan Klepper. And last week's North Carolina primary, Charlotte elected a new sheriff and district attorney who, as we white people have been trained to say, happened to be black. <laughs> that means... Charlotte's local leadership is now majority black. Klepper then played comments that Pat McCrory, Charlotte's former mayor and the state's former governor, made when he hosted a radio talk show on WBT. I'm worried about the segregated aspects of Charlotte-Mecklenburg politics and the potential lack of diversity that we might have. So how did African-Americans rise to power? In a county where white residents are still a plurality and only one in three residents are black. The biggest factor may be the collapse of the local Republican Party that started in 2008 when Barack Obama was elected. The GOP shifted to the right and Mecklenburg unaffiliated voters moved left. A year later, in 2009, Anthony Fox was elected Charlotte mayor, the first African-American to hold that job since Harvey Gantt 22 years earlier. Together we learned that people might look different. They might come from different backgrounds. They may even come from different parts of this community. But when we work together, great things happened. Political consultant Dan McCorkle says most city and county elections are now decided in the Democratic primary, where nearly half the voters are black. If they run a good campaign, they're going to win the primary and therefore more likely win the general. So how has all this changed public policy? In 2001, McCrory, who was then mayor, vetoed a measure that would have provided a living wage to all city employees of $9 an hour. That was in the era when the city saw itself as a business. Around 2015, council members, both black and white, successfully pushed to raise the city's base pay to $13 an hour and then to $15 an hour. Mecklenburg County and CMS followed. Around the same time, the city council brought back a program to increase the use of minority contractors. And the city began giving tax incentives to companies that would bring blue-collar jobs to Charlotte, even if they pay less than the city's average wage. Charlotte had previously only focused on subsidizing high-paying jobs, which were often in financial services. One beneficiary was a Black & Decker factory in southwest Charlotte, whose jobs paid less than $35,000 a decade ago. Here's former city council member Michael Barnes, who was black. Those jobs, though, could be held by black people, brown people, white people, anybody. And Sneed, who leads the Black Political Caucus, says there have been symbolic changes. Such as renaming schools, renaming streets. Like, would that have happened if there wasn't African-American elected officials? Perhaps the biggest change has been in criminal justice. Here's Mary Weather, the district attorney. There's a whole host of cases where it is important for me to not only say what my reading of the law is, but finding opportunities to have people understand, I am hearing you. He's talking, in part, about his decision three years ago not to file charges against a Charlotte police officer who shot and killed a man who waved a gun inside a Burger King on Beattysford Road. Merriweather wrote that while the shooting was legally justified, he and other prosecutors were, quote, not even asked on whether it was the right thing to do. Quite frankly, that responsibility would exist whether or not I'm uh, an African-American or not. That I am hearing the public that is talking to me, hearing the public that has put me in this position. There is more going on, however, than telling people that they've been heard.
The city council required body cameras and de-escalation training for Charlotte-Mecklenburg police. And former Chief District Court Judge Reagan Miller, who was black, moved the county away from cash bail. Here's what he said in 2018. It's a mindset that we've had historically that if you're charged with a crime, you should be arrested and put in jail pending your trial. Well, that's really not what constitutionally we're supposed to be doing. But not everyone is on board. Barnes, who ran unsuccessfully for district attorney in 2010, says he's concerned about the move away from cash bail. And within the framework of the Constitution and respecting people's constitutional rights, you have to consider what's best for society. You don't want people who are dangerous continuing to move throughout the community and commit crime after crime after crime. 2018 was a landmark election year in Mecklenburg in that Meriwether was elected and Gary McFadden became the first black sheriff. 2021 was noteworthy as well. That's when Mint Hill elected its first black town council member, Tawana Henderson. She says she tried to downplay the historic nature of her candidacy. And so what are those common things that have nothing to do with color? And I was intentional not about not making race be a factor. 74% of Mint Hill is white. She wants to make sure she's speaking for them and the other 26% in the town. For WFAE News, I'm Steve Harrison. When the weather be hot, everybody be outside having fun. Eating fresh fruits and vegetables and good food. A new corner store opens today in Chicago's Englewood neighborhood. It's an alternative to many small grocers in black and brown neighborhoods where they're known for offering unhealthy food and poor service. The nonprofit behind this new store is the Inner City Muslim Action Network, or Iman. WBEZ's Natalie Moore takes us to Go Green Community Fresh Market. It's a week out before the grocer officially opens and staff is busy stocking shelves, opening boxes. Oh, we're not using the big beans right now. Go Green seeks to be a model corner grocery store, one without bulletproof glass or grimy floors, but a bright, welcoming space, exposed brick, green paint, skylights, and fresh produce. One question I have as I'm looking at you all unpack, are there going to be flaming Hots? So there will not be any Flamin' Hots in this store. Um, <laughs> but we will have a lot. So, But we will carry the Frito-Lays brand. We will just be carrying a lot of their baked, simply kettle versions of those. That's Darren Jeters, the store manager. Sana Saeed is with Iman and says the conversation around Flamin' Hots, a staple in most corner stores, was a real one. When we think about product selection, we want to make sure it's accessible and uh, healthy. One, that was one. Two, is that it was affordable. Three, that it was, you know, um, one halal and also attuned to other diets. So essentially for folks who are gluten-free, vegan, whatever dietary needs people have, not only like the gluten-free vegan, but also just like, okay, I'm diabetic. Go Green is not a health food market. Familiar grocery store brands are in aisles. You know, muffins, biscuits, things like that, you know, things that are really staple things in the the African-American community. Corner stores tend to fill the void in neighborhoods with few grocery options, but they're often aesthetically unattractive and crammed with junk food, setting off tension between black customers and Arab store owners. Black patrons feel disrespected by the grocers and their lack of upkeep or offerings. 
In 2010, Iman started its Muslim Run campaign, using its cultural capital to connect with immigrant store owners while elevating food access as an issue in black communities. The site of Go Green used to be another corner store, and one Iman worked with to provide healthier options. When the store burned down, Iman bought the building. Go Green is a 3,700-square-foot radical departure from the norm. For us, this is about a model, not just in Chicago, but as we've been talking about for many, many years, it's hard to be what you can't see. Rami Nashashibi is Iman's executive director. Even with the immigrant stores, you know, we've always, it's been a delicate balance because we have not tried to over-demonize or criminalize many refugees and immigrants that have come to uh, the United States and end up operating in low-income black communities. I mean, in many ways, they're just simply uh, victims of this whole middleman minority phenomena where it's easier to set up shop in low-income black communities. This has led to pain and exploitation, but also the possibilities to build relationships. Many of these store owners were not, we've always pointed out, were not MBAs from the University of Chicago or Northwestern. Uh, They were running immigrant business models like, you know, most immigrants run models. I do what my cousin does. If he has, you know, gaudy neon signs with, you know, swishers and and, and Lucy's, and uh, that's what I do. As I looked out a window, I noticed a fresh banner and signage at a corner store across the street. Nashashibi says ever since construction started on Go Green, the other corner store started upgrading its exterior. This has all been evolving, which is kind of a good, kind of, we hope to see that. And that's the point of this larger Eman corner store campaign, pushing these immigrant-owned businesses on the south and west sides to do better. Natalie Moore, WBEZ News. Today, the U.S. Census Bureau released a report looking at the accuracy of its 2020 population count and whether it missed key groups of people across the country. Lisa Desjardins has more. The census found miscounts with multiple groups. The official census number overcounted two groups, non-Hispanic whites and Asians, but it undercounted blacks, Native Americans living on reservations and Hispanics by even more. To talk more about those miscounts and what they mean, I'm joined by NPR national correspondent Hansi Lo Wang. Hansi, let's just start with those overcounts and undercounts, especially the undercounts. Exactly how large were they? What are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about undercounts set for Latinos more than three times the net undercount rate compared to 2010. That's a dramatic increase. And for uh, for black people and for Native Americans living on reservations. Um, they are numerically higher net undercount rates, but the Census Bureau says they're not statistically any different. But still, the, the bottom line here is that there is this racial gap uh, between uh, people of color, generally speaking, and, and people who identify as white and not Hispanic. And for what is also interesting is that you do see an overcounting of Asian Americans, uh, which was not seen in 2010. And just to be clear, it's also not clear exactly how well the Census Bureau did in counting Pacific Islanders. I want to play the sound, some of the concerns that we heard from some of these groups today. Um, listen to some of this. Some four million plus, maybe as many as five million black people have been missed. And perhaps an equal number of people of Hispanic and Latino descent have been missed is a tragedy and an act of near malfeasance and incompetence. Today we learned that 
this census was really a five alarm fire when it comes to Latinos. The undercount of Latinos has tripled between 2010 and 2020. And I think that has significant implications for the entire country. Not just concern there, you and I were both on the call with the Census Bureau. There seemed to be some anger from some of these groups as well. Can you help us understand why is this happening? What do we know about why some groups in the official census number just are not counted as they really exist? This is a long-standing flaw with census numbers going back decades. This, this trend is not new. And what is new is that in 2020, we had the pandemic, coronavirus, uh, just as counting was getting really started nationwide, the outbreaks were happening. And we had years of interference from former President Donald Trump's administration, uh, beginning most notably with that failed push to add a citizenship question to the forms. It did not end up on the forms, but it stirred up a lot of controversy, a lot of fear, a lot of un uh, uncertainty uh, from a lot of households, especially those with immigrants living in them, of whether or not to participate in the census. And then during counting in 2020, the former, former President Donald Trump's administration ended counting early. All of these raised, all of these factors raised the risk of undercounting people of color because uh, research has shown that to, uh, the way to get those groups counted is through that person-to-person -person interaction, in-person door knocking, interviews, not necessarily uh, counting on households to fill out a form and and to essentially participate in the census on their own, and uh, and so that's a really major factors here of why we're seeing. Uh, a really a bad report card in many ways for the Census Bureau. Racial groups are not, the, of course, the only demographic. And in this census, we, the, this review also found that another group was uh, undercounted significantly, children under the age of five. We reached out to a children's advocate uh, to talk about what exactly they think that means, their concern there. Probably the most important reason uh, this matters for young children and for children in general is that there's about $1.5 trillion given out by the federal government to states and localities every year. That's 15 trillion over 10 years that the census data is used. And that uh, buys a lot of things like schools and childcare and playgrounds, things that kids need. In both of these areas, for kids and also for different racial groups in this country, can you help us understand what's at stake? What does the miscount in the census really mean in real lives? When we're talking about the census, we are talking about power, we are talking about money. These are the numbers used to reallocate each state's share of congressional seats, electoral college votes. They're being used to redraw voting maps for every level of government across the country. And these are numbers used to help guide the distribution of some $1.5 trillion a year for healthcare, uh, for, for transportation, for education, almost all public services. And so when there are these racial inequities baked in, in terms of the accuracy of these counts, you're gonna have racial inequities baked into the decision-making, into how power, political power is shared, how, how federal funding is shared. And you know, we're not even talking about how researchers, businesses rely on this data to have just a basic general understanding of who is living in the United States of America. And based on these uh, undercount rates and overcount rates of the census put out today, it's, it's another point uh, of evidence here that these numbers aren't true reflections of exactly who is living in the country. Hansi, in our last 30 seconds or so, what next? Are these numbers final? I know some groups are thinking about court action, but 
Are these numbers final now? Well, these numbers have already been used to reallocate those congressional seats, electoral college votes. They're already being used to redraw voting maps. Uh, the Census Bureau, one of the Census Bureau officials did confirm to me today that the Bureau is looking into possibly doing some more research and how to use these over and undercounting rates and to factor them into upcoming population estimates. And those estimates help guide how the, that federal funding is distributed. So that could have uh, some potential impact here on uh, maybe a more equitable distribution of federal funding. Uh, but it is a real big question of just how a lot of local communities, uh, when they look at their numbers and they feel like they're not quite an accurate reflection of who's living in their in their communities, it's a big question of what actually can be done beyond waiting for the 2030 census. Hansi Lo Wang, NPR, and our census guru, thank you so much. You're welcome. assume that all of the nation's historically black colleges and universities are located in the South, but that's not the case. There was one here in Michigan. Located in Detroit, the Lewis College of Business operated from 1939 through 2013. And plans are afoot to reopen the school under a new curriculum. In fact, just last week, Designer Brands, that's the parent company of Designer Shoe Warehouse, announced it's donating $2 million to help Michigan's first and only HBCU reopen as Pencil Lewis College of Business and Design. Back in November, when we first talked about this, we met the designer who started the project, Dwayne Edwards. He's a veteran sneaker designer with credits at Nike and several other brands. He wants the school to serve young people in situations similar to the one that he once was in himself. For me, the goal was to remove the barriers and obstacles that I had that prevented me from attending college, which was money um, and not even knowing what school to attend. So that's Dwayne Edwards explaining his interest in getting the college back up and running again. But during our conversation, another name kept coming up, Violet Lewis, the woman who originally founded the Lewis College of Business nearly 100 years ago. She was an amazing woman. I mean, she was one of three Black women to found an HBCU. Duane also noticed some parallels between the school's new incarnation and its original back in 1928. The more I learned about her story and her journey, there were some parallels between what she was doing in, the, in 1928 and to what I was doing. Not only is there continuity of Lewis College as a trade school, then and now, it's intended to elevate and serve Detroit's Black community. She started a, a secretary school, and it was a very specific trade school for women, Black women who weren't allowed to work in offices, where for us, you know, we started a very specific school for footwear design to improve how many Black people and brown people are in this industry. Dwayne said he found Violet Lewis's whole story very powerful. But what really, what really hit home for me was her journey and what she was able to accomplish. And, and she started the school on a $50 loan and she bartered things to get typewriters. <laughs> I mean, she was the epitome of an entrepreneur. So who was this woman, the mastermind behind the Lewis College of Business? Here with some answers is the Michigan History Center's curator of exhibits, Jillian Reese. Jillian, welcome back to Stateside. 
Thanks for having me. You know, I think some people may not have even been aware of the Lewis College of Business until last year when this plan came up. Dwayne Edwards, the founder of Pencil Design Academy in Portland, Oregon, is reopening it as a not strictly a sneaker school, but certainly with design in mind. I mean, had you heard of it before you started diving in on the research? You know, I had always seen the placard. The, the historic marker. Um, and I knew of Violet Lewis's civil rights background, but I didn't put two and two together until the reports in the media about the college reopening. Where does Violet Lewis's story begin? So Violet was born in Ohio, and her parents were supportive of her getting a advanced degree early on in her life. And her father really wanted her to become a secretary, which was one of the only professional jobs available to women at the turn of the last century. And she went to school at Wilberforce University in Ohio and got a degree in business and a certificate in secretarial skills like typing, um, that sort of thing. Wilberforce is another historically black college in the Midwest that a lot of people uh, don't necessarily know about, but this is uh, around Dave Chappelle's stomping grounds near Dayton, Ohio. Yes. And um, after she left Wilberforce, she had a hard time finding employment in the professional world. And her first job actually was as a caretaker of two older women in Ohio. Um, But pretty quickly, she realized that that wasn't fulfilling and she wanted to use her degree. So she got a job um, in the executive offices of the business school at Selma University, another historically black college in Alabama. Right. How did she end up back in this end of the world? So she spent a year or so at Selma, and she really liked the atmosphere, but she wanted to live closer to family. So she looked for positions in Indiana and ended up at Madam C.J. Walker's beauty business in Indianapolis working as a secretary there. I understand that during her time in Indianapolis, Violet Lewis had something of a revelation. Yeah, so she she moved from Madam C.J. Walker's company to a black newspaper there in Indianapolis, and she kept seeing ads for secretarial work, clerical work for businesses in Indiana, but geared towards folks from outside Indiana. And she looked into why Uh, these businesses were not hiring locally. And the mostly African-American business owners told her that they couldn't find qualified individuals in Indianapolis. And after a little more digging, she found out that Indianapolis's business school would only admit one black student at a time. That was their quota. Uh, So it wasn't one black student class it was one black student at a time. Boy, it's nothing to make you feel like a part of the gang, like being the only black student in your class. That must have been terribly hard. Yes, exactly. And actually, when Violet Lewis first looked into this, the young woman who was enrolled at the school was exchanging enrollment for working as the school's elevator operator. 
So Violet had this idea that maybe what was needed was just an institution that was for black students and, and run by black teachers and administrators. What kind of hoops did she have to jump through as, as a black woman in the 20s to get this off the ground? So she was offered three months free rent by a local black entrepreneur who owned a lot of real estate in downtown Indianapolis in the black business district. And he said, I'll give you three months free rent if you can make this profitable. He did not think that this would really work out for Violet, but he still wanted to champion her because he knew that she was sort of a rock star. And so she saw an advertisement, again, in the newspaper for a bank that was giving out $50 loans. And she approached the bank, and the bank told her, we do not give money to women, and we do not loan money to African Americans. And she actually got into sort of a little debate with them that day um, at the loan company. And she sort of said, you know, why are you even advertising this? This is false advertising. If you have these sort of restrictions, you need to put that up front. And she ended up getting the bank to agree that she could get the $50 loan if she had three men who were specifically federal employees co-signing the loan for her. Federal employees? That's random. Yes. There was this stereotype about black men being unemployed and not being able to find work. And, you know, they wanted that federal stamp of approval. And Violet knew three men who worked in custodial services for the U.S. Postal Service in Indianapolis. And they were the ones that ended up co-signing for her loan. Wow. So how immediate a response was there when she opened her doors and went into business? She opened the Lewis College of Business in 1928, and in the first class there were six students. Some of them were friends of hers. She also enrolled her own family members in school, but there were six students there. And the next semester, it doubled. And then the next semester, that doubled. So right off the bat, it was shown that there was a need and interest for this kind of advanced schooling uh, for specifically Black women. So why did she ultimately decide to move the college to Detroit? So she operated for about 10 years, and we should say that it's really incredible that the college continued through the Great Depression, which, of course, hit all Americans, but Black Americans especially hard. And um, she continued to work for the legislature, but she started hearing about the up-and-coming, vibrant Black community in Detroit. Indianapolis certainly had a strong black community, but there was hardly any place in America where black folks were opening up businesses, were um, being really invested in their local community outside of Detroit. So she wanted to be there. Right. This is not entirely surprising given what was going on in the region at the time, but was there anything that she wanted to do differently 
when she when she got to Detroit, or was it more a matter of just meeting the market where she could find it? I think she really had big goals and big dreams. You know, the Great Migration was bringing thousands of newcomers to the state, and there were also rumblings of World War II and Detroit's place as the center of manufacturing, eventually known as you know the arsenal of democracy, meant. New and unprecedented opportunities for Black people, particularly in professional roles that they did not have access to before World War II. But what was going on with Violet Lewis personally during these years? So that year that she moved to Detroit, so she started looking in Detroit in 38. She made the official move and purchased the property in late 39. And in 1940, when she's making this big move to Detroit, she'll eventually close the Lewis College of Business in Indianapolis and invest fully in Detroit. She learns that she has breast cancer. And by this time, she's estranged from her husband. She get a divorce. She's running uh, the school. She's, she's moving to an entirely different state, an entirely different city. You know, she's welcomed by the black community with open arms, certainly, but she has this life crisis where she's trying to run the school the first year the school's supposed to be open in Detroit, and she's battling breast cancer. Mm. And just this in a really incredible story about self-determination at a time when women, especially black women, did not have many resources. The other thing that happened in 1940, which was quite dramatic, And again, when you're thinking about someone battling breast cancer, it's just layers and layers onto the story. Uh, She received a letter in the mail saying that she had to cease operations of the Lewis College of Business due to complaints of her white neighbors. Wow. Yes. And their complaints were that she was breaking zoning laws, that the neighborhood had been zoned for residential and that for-profit businesses could not operate. But Lewis and the black community saw this as a smokescreen. They were using zoning laws as a way to evict this black woman and her business from this area. They did not want the Lewis College of Business there. So what happened? Did she have to move it? No, you know, she reached out to her local network and black business leaders in particular in Detroit walked her through the process of turning the Lewis College of Business into a nonprofit, which would then be allowed by the zoning laws. And there's this scene where they have to get a seven-day extension on her eviction. And within that time, they come to Lansing, file the paperwork, and get approved for the Lewis College of Business to be a nonprofit. The Lewis College of Business certainly did outlive Violet's sort of leadership at it. And while it did close in 2013, we now are in this, in this period of revival for it. Can you tell us about how things went for the college after Violet stepped away? Yeah. So in the years during and after World War II, there was a big push from African-Americans nationally, but also specifically in Detroit, to get more black professionals at the big three auto companies. 
And the Lewis College of Business became the primary pipeline for getting folks into these positions, particularly after World War II when integration was a huge push in sort of the beginnings of the mid-century civil rights movement. And she was even tapped by the State Department to go abroad to talk about black entrepreneurship. And unfortunately, in the late 60s, when the pinnacle of black activism in, in Detroit was happening, Violet was re-diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, and this time it was incredibly um, aggressive. She tried to fight it, but unfortunately, she ended up passing away in 1968. But her two daughters, who had been at her side throughout all of this, who had worked at the school, continued to run the school uh, after she left. The Lewis College of Business would eventually leave their Ferry Street location. In the time of Violet's life, they actually bought two more buildings on that street to offer dormitories for students who didn't live locally. And they moved to Northwest Detroit. But as time went on, as Detroit saw deinvestment across the board and a lot of folks leaving Detroit to the suburbs in sort of white flight, the rise of other big centers of black entrepreneurship like Atlanta, enrollment really waned in the 80s and 90s. And then the college would eventually lose accreditation and close in, in 2013. Jillian Reese is curator of exhibits at the Michigan History Center. Jillian, thank you so much for looking into Violet Lewis for us and for sharing. Thanks for having me. Uh, and another one, and another one. It's so gorgeous. Talked with the mom of a 14-year-old eighth grader here at JS Water School. She says he's on the baseball team, and what happened all played out on the baseball field. This is the letter Chatham County School Superintendent Dr. Anthony Jackson sent to all parents Tuesday night, vaguely addressing what he referred to as recent incidents involving students using racially insensitive language and offensive imagery, something he said will not be tolerated. Yeah, it didn't give any details as to really what it was, you know, just that they were kind of taking care of it or whatever. Some parents in the JS Waters School carpool line now finding out it was last week. Ashley Palmer says her son and his teammates were on the field at baseball practice when some of the white students carried out a mock slave auction. Palmer writing on Facebook, his friend went for $350 and another student was the slave master because he knew how to handle them. Stop the motherfucking record. I don't want us to lose sight that things are getting better. Each successive generation uh, seems to be making progress in changing attitudes when it comes to race. Doesn't mean we're in a post-racial society. It doesn't mean that racism is eliminated. But you know, when I talk to Malia and Sasha, uh, and I listen to their friends, and I see them interact, they're better than we are. They're better than we were on these issues. And that's true in every community uh, that I've visited all across the country. I want you to pondy replay drama. Pondy replay. <laughs> <laughs> 
give him one more chance, man. Run that shit the fuck back. Palmer writing on Facebook, his friend went for $350, and another student was the slave master because he knew how to handle them. Palmer tells ABC 11 as far as she knows, the baseball coach was unaware of what happened. But when she told administrators, the students involved were suspended for one day. And upon their return, one hit her son with a baseball several times, claiming it was an accident. Dr. Jackson in his letter said, I want to be clear, racist, homophobic or otherwise hateful behavior or speech has no place in the Chatham County school system. We talk to our kids about that sort of thing. So, you know, what's right or wrong and you know, how to treat people. A school district spokesperson would not confirm how many students were involved or what actions they'd taken. Palmer says administrators have now contacted her, expressing concern for families on the other side of the incident who say they're being targeted. Palmer telling ABC 11, I'm empathetic with these individuals because there's children involved. However, I wish the concern for protection translated to the protection of our son as well. Palmer says she and her family are seeking legal action for what she referred to as assault and continuous harassment toward her son. In Goldston, Andrea Blanford, ABC 11 Eyewitness News. And unfortunately, in the late 60s, when the pinnacle of black activism in, in Detroit was happening, Violet was re-diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, and this time it was incredibly um, aggressive. She tried to fight it, but unfortunately, she ended up passing away in 1968. Reducing cancer deaths is a high priority for the Biden administration. So is reducing racial disparities in cancer treatment, which many worry will widen because of the pandemic. Nationally, cancer kills black people at higher rates. But Biden's home state of Delaware has narrowed, even eliminated disparities in death rates for some forms of cancer. Key to that success are so-called patient navigators who reach people least likely to get care. Here's NPR's Yuki Noguchi. Every Tuesday, Margaret Osias sets up shop at a medical clinic in Delaware's farm country, hoping to schedule mammograms for people like Michelin Estimable. Speaking in Estimable's native Haitian Creole, Osias explains how, in Delaware, the cost of mammograms and tests for other cancers are covered, even for uninsured or undocumented residents. But residents like Estimable often don't know about that, which is where Osias comes in. I can understand what are those barriers. You know, I am basically the connection between that individual and receiving that care. Osias is a patient navigator for the Delaware Breast Cancer Coalition, which contracts with the state. She finds people in the community due for mammograms. She schedules exams, sends reminders, and arranges rides to get there. She also deals with insurance or even goes with patients to appointments as a translator. Otherwise, patients like Estimable might fall through the cracks. Estimable is in her early 60s. She hurt her leg and lost her poultry factory job two years ago. Is it hard to get screened for you because of transportation or because of language? Transportation. Transportation, yes. You don't have a car? No, I'm not driving because my leg. Screening rates are low in Sussex County, which is home to many people like her, natives of Haiti living in communal quarters and sharing rides. 
the state essentially subsidizes the cost of insurance, transportation, and navigators to address their practical challenges. If cancer is found, the state will also pay for up to two years of treatment, including for people earning up to six and a half times the federal poverty level. Delaware's approach to cancer care is unique in the U.S. It adopted it two decades ago when it had the second highest cancer death rate in the country. It's still funded primarily by settlement funds from tobacco companies, and now it's become a model for addressing racial inequity in health care. The program is there. This is how you can get it done. Family nurse practitioner Nadia Julian opened Tabitha Medical Care and started working with navigators like Osias. Julian says the clinic serves mostly fellow Haitians and some Latino immigrants. Many are illiterate and didn't grow up with preventative medicine back home. So they are at especially high risk of getting late-stage cancers. Having patient navigators on the front line is essential. What have you seen with your patients? How does it help oh, them? Oh, my God. It's helped a lot. Navigators, she says, break down the specific barriers to care. When you have the navigator that speaks the language, that can schedule the appointment, that can go to the house and pick them up, and also be there with them to translate, it's give the comfort. You know, I'm not alone. I have somebody that can help translate for me. Helping these people starts with identifying zip codes where screening rates run low. Navigators then fan out across grocery stores and laundromats in those communities, dropping flyers, setting up booths, and meeting with religious leaders. They arrange mobile screening vans to factories and other workplaces. Stephen Grubb says the state continues to learn and tweak the program to remove more roadblocks. This program, I think, has been successful because we build it on data and evidence. He's a medical oncologist and one of the founding advisors of the Delaware Cancer Consortium, which designed the program. And the final endpoint was, did we change mortality? And the answer was yes. That's where you got to get to. If you don't get to there, the other stuff really doesn't matter, does it? Grubb says free screening helps save on overall cancer care costs. Catching cancers earlier means less invasive, less costly treatment with better outcomes. And that's possible because of navigators. We took the barriers down and the navigators greased the system and made sure it all flowed through. That's exactly what it was. The state hopes to build on that, getting more funds to hire more navigators and boost screening rates for other cancers. It isn't alone. Since Delaware first started using patient navigators, they've come to play a big role in cancer care nationally. Karen Knetson is CEO of the American Cancer Society. And I think there's this good, strong business case for it as well because of the lower cost of care for patients who are navigated. The problem, she says, is insurance doesn't cover navigation. Until there's reimbursement, this is on the backs of organizations like ACS and on the cancer centers to try to find ways to navigate patients. Knutson hopes that will change. She spoke to President Biden last month when the White House relaunched its Cancer Moonshot initiative, setting targets to cut cancer deaths in half in 25 years. He did not specifically talk about navigators using that word, but he did talk about eliminating disparities and increasing access. To me, what I hear when I hear that, I hear navigation. Back at Tabitha Medical Care, 
Navigator Margaret Osias has scheduled a mammogram for patient Michelin Estimable. I'll go ahead and call her, give her a reminder text, and then I also told her that I'm still happy that she came today because knowledge is power. So if she goes to a church or if she's in the community, if she can share that information with maybe other women, that she can let them know that they can come and we can help them apply for screening for life. Do you think she's likely to do that? Est-ce que vous pensez que vous partager information avec l'autre fille de screening for life? Yes. Yes. Yuki Noguchi, NPR News, Sussex County, Delaware. If there is somebody with bluer eyes than mine, then maybe there is somebody with the bluest eyes. The bluest eyes in the whole world. That's just too bad, isn't it? Please help me look. No. But suppose my eyes aren't blue enough. Blue enough for what? Blue enough for... I don't know. Blue enough for something. Blue enough... For you, I'm not going to play with you anymore. Oh, don't leave me. Yes, I am. Why? Are you mad at me? Yes. Because my eyes aren't blue enough? Because I don't have the bluest eyes? No, because you're acting silly. Don't go. Don't leave me. Will you come back if I get them? Get what? The bluest eyes. Will you come back then? Of course I will. I'm just going away for a little while. You promise? Sure. I'll be back. Right before your very eyes. So it was. A little black girl yearns for the blue eyes of a little white girl. And the horror at the heart of her yearning is exceeded only by the evil of fulfillment. Back to the international side of the Ukraine story now and an aspect of the news coverage that has left many viewers shaking their heads. Some reporters and television hosts, white ones, pointing out how relatable Ukrainian refugees are with their blonde hair, their blue eyes. The bluest eyes in the whole world. Using words like civilized to distinguish Ukrainians from the kind of refugees that journalists have covered from Syria, for example, or Afghanistan. These are incidents, terms that have somehow slipped out during the live coverage of news, when stuff tends to happen. However, the framing and the terminology expose a thing or two about double standards in reporting depending on a refugee's skin color or their religious beliefs. H.A. Hellier has spent a career in academia studying Europe's treatment of ethnic minorities. He joins us now. Mr. Hellier, let's start with this. There's not a great deal of subtlety, is there, in some of the bias that we've seen in the journalism on Ukraine, particularly the refugee angle. What has the coverage of this story told you about the hierarchy of human worth insofar as some elements of the media are concerned? So I'm glad you said some elements in the media because I think a lot of people have actually done the job really well over the past week. Um, but we're focusing quite rightly on not just a few rotten apples, but quite a large uh, phenomenon that exists in, in much of the Western media when it comes to uh, coverage over the last week. These are um, Christians, they're white, they're, um, they're very similar to people, many people who live in Poland. And, they're all and there is a hierarchy. Um, and the hierarchy has to do with race, 
The hierarchy has to do with religious affiliation. We're talking about war in the Ukraine and the barbarism that is unfolding as though it was somehow uh, unique. It's not unique. Now the unthinkable has happened to them. And this is not a developing third world nation. This is Europe. We've seen much worse than this many times uh, just over the past decade. And the, the shock and horror that you see from some elements in the Western media, as though uh, this was something unique and special. Of course, it is special because everybody's suffering is special, but it's not unique. And when we make that argument that it is unique, that we haven't seen this before, it means that we're raising and making invisible all those people that have suffered so tremendously in other places, very often, by the way, at the hands of the same military hardware that Vladimir Putin is putting to work in Ukraine. We're not talking about a single journalist here, are we? Or even a couple. This has happened across a variety of news outlets, including this one, Al Jazeera. What does that tell us about how widely ingrained this kind of thinking really is? So we have two major issues here. One, there are going to be people who are frankly, bluntly, very openly racist and bigoted. But that's not the bigger problem. The structural way in which certain things can be said that are incredibly bigoted and racist in and of themselves, even though the people themselves who are uttering them might be you know, very nice and very professional and so on, that's the problem that I see right here. These are prosperous, I'm loath to use the expression, these are prosperous middle-class people. These are not obviously refugees trying to get away from areas in the Middle East. I'm not saying that all of these people are racist. I'm saying that there is a wider issue here where we are not sufficiently aware of the biases that we hold, and that allows for a lot of this stuff to become far more mainstream than we're really comfortable talking about. Given what we've heard from the media and from some European politicians on refugees, is it any wonder that Ukrainians are being welcomed at these borders, allowed to cross them in ways that Afghans and Syrians were not? So, uh, unfortunately, I'm not surprised. Uh, and I say this as somebody who's been studying uh, racial politics and, uh, and ethnic minorities in Europe for 20 years. And, you know, people have been arguing and I've seen this, you know, multiple times over the last few days that, oh, well, it's natural um, that people will have more of an affinity uh, with those who look like them and so on. And, and I'm not sure that they really recognize entirely the, uh, the ramifications of what they're saying, because most of our societies, if not all of our societies, are not homogenous. There is diversity that exists within them right now let alone as a result of recent migrations of, you know, refugees and so on. It's quite extraordinary that in 2022, we continue to have to have these conversations. Um, and I'm very glad and grateful that so many uh, of our governments have accepted Ukrainian refugees that are fleeing Putin's invasion. Um, I hope that we learn a valuable lesson here, that it's not simply Ukrainians who deserve that right and privilege, uh, but it's any human being that we have the opportunity to help. We have had a relatively good history of looking at suicide in, in Native American, American Indian populations, because there's high rates there as well. But specifically Black Americans, the rates have been going up 
faster than they have in white Americans, but we're recognizing more and more that risk for suicide is up there and increasing for black Americans, especially, especially younger, younger black, black, black males. In the white population, we see suicides more in middle age and sort of very old, like after 85. But the risk period is highest for black Americans around age 20. And that's arguably much more tragic to, to lose someone so young. Gun buying among African-Americans has soared recently, as have suicide rates among young black men. Wow! Hey, yo, drama, hold up, sir. Hold on, hold on. Stop the motherfucking record. Right. The man, the man, man race, race, class, class genre, genre, and the dilemmas the of black manhood. Run that shit the fuck back. Gun buying among African-Americans has soared recently, as have suicide rates among young black men. Experts believe the two are linked. Alex Smith of KCUR reports, and we should warn you, the sound of gunshots at a gun range will be heard in this story. When Reba Rice Portwood was growing up in St. Louis in the 70s and 80s, suicide was seen as a problem outside of her own African-American community. When someone would die by suicide, and if we heard about it on television or if we read about it, we'd always assume that it was Caucasian. That changed a few years ago when her son Ricky died. Reba says Ricky had an old soul. He loved Sam Cooke and looked out for older people in his apartment complex. But Reba said her son was also tormented by depression. One day in 2014, Reba got a frantic call from her son's fiance, who told her that Ricky had shot himself. Ricky died at a hospital. He was only 22. I'm like, what did I do so bad in this life for God to allow my son to pass? Reba also strained to understand how her son, who was known to struggle with mental health, managed to get a gun. Since 2012, suicides among young black men have increased by nearly 50 percent. And experts warn that increasing gun ownership among African Americans is playing a role in that. As recently as 2015, just 14 percent of black adults owned a gun. By 2021, just six years later, 25% of blacks owned a gun. Self-defense has long been a main reason for buying guns, but many black owners say that for them, this is a particularly thorny issue. At Sharpshooter Range in South St. Louis, Sharice Lewis practices with her new handgun. Lewis, who's black, says she's concerned about crime where she lives. St. Louis had the highest big city homicide rate in the U.S. in 2020, according to FBI data. She started carrying a firearm because she doesn't feel comfortable calling police for protection. Some people rely on law enforcement, which for African-Americans, that's not always the safest course of action. So I would rather control the situation. A new study estimates that since 2019, more than 5 million Americans bought a gun for the first time. Of these new gun owners, 21 percent were black. Having a gun in the home increases suicide risk by two to five times. Harvard researcher Deb Azrael says it's time to update assumptions about who may be in danger. Gun ownership is more diverse now, and so when we talk to people about the risks of guns, we want to make sure that we're actually reaching out across the board. In the days following her son's death, Reba Rice-Portwood grappled with grief. And then came surprising news. Ricky's fiancé discovered she was pregnant. If somebody wanted to teach me how to do multiple, I already know. These days, Reba works as a mental health counselor and is raising her grandson, Jackson, who's six years old. On a Saturday morning at her apartment, he shows off his multiplication skills on a tablet. Despite what happened to her son, Reba still keeps a pistol in a safe at home. She says she's held on to it for one big reason. Fear 
Like, actually, I went to the grocery store, you know, and was almost carjacked. And that's the reason why I still have it now. While she's haunted by gun violence, Reba says the accumulation of firearms in her community seems increasingly impossible even for her to avoid. For NPR News, I'm Alex Smith in St. Louis. This story comes from NPR's partnership with KCUR and Kaiser Health News. And we should let you know that if you or somebody you know may be considering suicide, contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. To the winner by split decision. We're going to follow up now on a story of a man who served 25 years in prison. Brandon Jackson served that time for armed robbery, even though some members of the jury found him not guilty. We reported a few months ago on an Al Jazeera documentary which told Jackson's story as well as the story of the law under which he was convicted. For generations, Louisiana did not require juries to reach a unanimous decision. After the Civil War, white leaders allowed non-unanimous jury verdicts in order to dismiss the opinions of the occasional black juror. In 2020, the Supreme Court ruled that non-unanimous jury laws were unconstitutional, but that decision was not retroactive, so a lot of people like Brandon Jackson remained in prison. Jackson was finally released last month on parole. I got a chance to talk with him recently. Even before we got going, it was clear when we were getting him on the line that he is navigating a world that has changed. Hello? Hello? Brandon, there you are. Yeah, thank you. I just had a hard time connecting. Uh, I'm not caught up on um, a lot of the technology right now. You know, cell phones. So, um, how are you doing? I'm fine. I'm, I'm adjusting. And um, I just feel a lot of joy right now, you know, just being able to be here and be with my mom. You know, that was probably the only thing that I was just really fearful about, you know, her passing away while I was incarcerated because, you know, she she rode with me for the whole 25 and a half years. And yeah. it's just a blessing to be here. You mentioned that, I mean, obviously stuff has changed. You've been in prison for 25 years. The the, the cell phone stuff is new to you, you mentioned. What else is different about the world? I'm going to tell you, I stood, um, we went to a store and I didn't know. I, I stood there for like maybe 30, 45 minutes waiting on the, the lady to come check the items out. I didn't know that we are able now to check our own items out. Yeah. So when she walked up, you know, when she showed me, I was like blown away from that. It's just amazing just to even be here and, you know, just see how the world has changed in over 25 years of just seeing brick and fences and barbed wires. Jackson has maintained his innocence since his conviction. The Al Jazeera documentary revealed that nobody was able to identify him at the robbery. The state relied on the testimony of a man named Joseph Young, who ended up changing his story a couple times and ultimately testified against Brandon Jackson in exchange for a lighter sentence. I'm not even mad about it. I'm not angry about it. I think God allowed that thing that 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 happened to me because he got something that he wants me to do and 
I'm going to fulfill it because all I can think about is the men that I left behind that's incarcerated under the same racist law that I was incarcerated on. He was incarcerated at the Angola prison, notorious for violence and inhumane treatment of prisoners. An altercation with correctional officers landed him in solitary confinement for five years. I had no TV. I had no radio. I had no reading material. And I stayed in that cell 23 hours a day. They only let me out an hour to shower and use the phone and do whatever exercise that I can do in that hour for five years straight. Brandon Jackson is home now, living with his mom. They start every day with coffee at the kitchen table, and she reads a Bible verse, and they pray. But patterns are hard to break. I just find myself waking up every time that it's count time in prison. I find myself waking up because you can't miscount. If you if you miscount, that's a, um, a rule infraction. I know eventually it'll stop. But as far as my mental health, you know, I'm fine because my past has not defined me. It ain't destroyed me. It hasn't deterred me. There are about 1,500 other prisoners in the state who were convicted by split juries and are still in prison, despite the Supreme Court ruling those verdicts unconstitutional. About 80 percent of them are black. That's my fight. And that's I think about that every day. Jackson is also thinking about how to build up the community that he's been away from for so long. He wants to start a nonprofit to help young people in his hometown of Shreveport, Louisiana. Meanwhile, he is learning to savor small things. Earlier in our conversation, he mentioned to me that there's a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is fleeting. Joy fills a different, deeper space. What has brought you joy? Besides the simplicity of sitting with your mom and having coffee. Right. Just the small things has brought me joy. Just being able to just go outside. Like yesterday, um, we had a little rain. So I just walked in the backyard and just stood in the middle of the backyard. And I just wanted to get wet. I wanted I wanted, I wanted, wanted to feel, you know, God's tears just pour on me. So I just stayed there. That was Brandon Jackson speaking to us after he was released from Angola Prison in Louisiana. He spent 25 years there, the result of a split jury decision, the likes of which the Supreme Court has now ruled unconstitutional. White supremacy is the sickness. On March 15th, 2020, it was dawning on many of us that something really bad was about to happen. In a federal prison in Springfield, Missouri, it was also dawning on Waylon Youngbird. That day, he sat down and quietly wrote a letter to a federal judge. Greetings, sir. Just a quick letter concerning the pandemic of the coronavirus affecting the United States. That's a producer reading his words. A lot of us here are very concerned for our own safety and worried for our families and relatives at home. Youngbird was in a race against time, trying to get out of prison faster than the coronavirus could get to him. For nearly two years now, thousands of federal inmates have been doing the same. Many have failed. Eventually, Youngbird would too. As NPR's Meg Anderson reports, his death and many others are part of a grim statistic. The Federal Bureau of Prisons has said all along they have a plan to keep the pandemic under control. 
But federal prison records tell a different story. If you look at the death rates in those prisons for the five years before the pandemic, you'd expect that in 2020, about 300 people would have died. But in fact, 462 people died. That's more than 50% higher. And last year, it was 20% higher. Since the start of the pandemic, nearly 300 prisoners have died from COVID-19. And many of the inmates who died of COVID tried to get out, just like Waylon Youngbird. Many of us are at high risk of getting this virus because of our health conditions, the overcrowding conditions here, and the uncleanliness of this prison medical center. Youngbird was a prisoner in his early 50s, and he had a lot of health conditions that made him vulnerable to COVID. He was sick enough, in fact, that he was in a prison for inmates who need intensive medical care. And so he kept writing to that federal judge. If given the chance, I will prove I can stay out of trouble and follow the rules and conditions set for me. I know I'm not a bad person. I just made a few bad decisions in my life. Youngbird had only been at his prison a few months for dealing drugs. He asked to be approved for something called home confinement, where you're still in prison custody, but you're being monitored at home. At the start of the pandemic, it seemed like a lot of inmates might be able to go home in this way. That's because in order to help keep staff, prisoners, and the surrounding communities safe, the Bureau of Prisons needed to make the prison population much smaller and quickly. The consensus about that among public health experts, scientists, and doctors was nearly unanimous and nearly immediate. That's Patricia Richmond of the Federal Public and Community Defenders. It wasn't just health experts. The attorney general at the time, Bill Barr, pushed for home confinement, too. And COVID relief legislation called the CARES Act made it easier to do that. That was just a broad authorization from Congress to say, BOP, you can put anyone on home confinement early. But that's not what happened. In two federal prisons, the Justice Department identified hundreds of people who were potentially eligible for home confinement, but had been denied by the BOP. At another prison, a federal judge called the slow release of inmates, quote, deliberate indifference. As of February of this year, 6% of the prison population has been transferred directly because of the CARES Act since the start of the pandemic. Many more people could have been transferred, there's no doubt, and that surely would have protected individuals who were both sent to home confinement and people who stayed behind. To be sure, not everyone can safely be released from prison. But NPR looked at the records of people who died from COVID. Almost all of them were elderly or had pre-existing conditions. The exact type of person the attorney general said needed to get out. So what went wrong? First of all, the Bureau of Prisons made the criteria strict. For instance, inmates had to have served half their sentence to be eligible. I think they overstepped their bounds. Maureen Baird is a former warden. You have guys that are in prison now, late 70s, early 80s, mid 80s, that are no danger to the community. The Bureau of Prisons was the sole decision maker when it came to who got to go home and why. And Baird says that after the attorney general told the Bureau to prioritize home confinement, the BOP made the criteria for who could be eligible stricter. The Bureau did loosen some criteria over time, but current BOP employees told NPR that even with the high bar, they saw problems with how decisions were made. There was a list of people that was qualified and there was a list of people who left. If you're an inmate that had political influence and had money, 
you will probably get released rather than somebody who probably really should have gotten released. Joe Rojas, a teacher at a federal prison in Florida, said the release of people like Michael Cohen and Paul Manafort, then President Trump's former lawyer and campaign chairman, raised eyebrows. But there was another reason that kept some people from going on home confinement. Some BOP employees said there just weren't enough people to do the work. They told NPR that understaffing made it hard to get through the home confinement paperwork. Mary Mellick works at a federal detention center in Miami. They pile up where you have a list and you can't get to it. So it takes, on average, one to two months to get everything processed for somebody that could have probably left in a week. The Bureau of Prisons declined an interview for this story. But in a statement, a spokesperson told NPR, quote, all inmates are reviewed appropriately for CARES Act home confinement. By mid-2020, Waylon Youngbird, the prisoner writing letters to a judge, had been denied for home confinement. I know I just wrote to you, but I'm writing again. This morning around 10 a.m., an inmate next to me said, it's official now. The first case of the coronavirus is here. He wrote that he went back to his dorm unit and put his face mask on. He tried to call his family, but the lines were too long. I don't know what to do. I'm scared like everyone else. Last month, after a prayer service, I decided I should write a last will and testament because if I catch the virus, it hits fast and I won't have much time to do anything. Youngbird had one other avenue to try, something called compassionate release, where your sentence is actually reduced and you're no longer in custody. Many other inmates were doing the same. Denied for home confinement, they were turning to the courts. But filing a motion for compassionate release is a slow process. It's no match for a rapidly spreading virus. Before you can file one of those motions, you actually have to make that request to the Bureau of Prisons itself. And then after 30 days, you can file in the court, right, if the warden doesn't do anything. Colin Prince, a federal public defender, says because wardens almost never approve those requests, those 30 days are often essentially just a waiting period. Once an inmate does get to court, it's the word of the inmate against the word of the Bureau of Prisons and the Justice Department. They were just writing, we've got this. We're experts in infectious disease. Here's the many policies we've put in place. And the public defender's offices are off in the distance here going, None of this is working. Prince did manage to get compassionate release for some of his clients, like Ron Sheehy. Sheehy was at Lompoc Federal Prison, and he remembers an atmosphere where the pandemic did not feel under control. People trying to hold a coffee in because, you know, it started an argument. And, you know, people trying to get up and rush to the bathroom so they don't cough. It was the worst at night. That's when you got people that was really getting sick. At nighttime, that's all you heard was just coughing all night, all night. By May 2020, three out of every four inmates at Lompoc had COVID. Sheehy feels like he cheated death. We all was lucky to make through what we went through, and some of us didn't. NPR spoke with several BOP employees who also raised issues with how the Bureau was handling the pandemic. We asked the BOP for comment, and they wrote that they worked closely with the CDC on a pandemic plan. Prince, the public defender again. My biggest criticism is that their leadership just wasn't really open and honest about the problems. And of the compassionate release motions that went to court, federal judges denied more than 80 percent of them. 
When we looked at the people who died of COVID in prison, we saw that one in four had tried to go home through compassionate release. And at least three of them had their requests granted, but died before they could actually be released. Many others died while their motions were pending. Some had been waiting months. I see these deaths as preventable. That's Allison Guernsey, a law professor at the University of Iowa who's been tracking COVID deaths in federal prison. We're not going to know the exact conditions of confinement in each and every prison unless and until there is an independent investigation. And she says until that investigation happens, the full story of just how many deaths might have been prevented will be unknown. I received your letter of denial to my compassionate release. I was surprised you denied me. In the fall of 2020, Waylon Youngbird's options were running out. His letters had become increasingly desperate. By October, at least 200 inmates and staff were infected at Youngbird's prison. I'm afraid I may be infected by the time you receive this letter and would not be able to contact my family by then. Some staff, he said, had stopped coming to work. The situation isn't looking too good here. I just keep praying for my safety. Youngbird tested positive the next day. He died the following week. There was a person at the other end of those letters, Judge Roberto Lang in South Dakota. And he had been reading the letters all along. It was Judge Lang who denied Youngbird's request for compassionate release. And he thinks he got it right. It isn't cursory or uh, cookie cutter. I I really did uh, think about Mr. Youngbird and his situation. I felt as if I had ruled properly under the circumstances in denying his motion for compassionate release. Youngbird had served only a small portion of his time, and during his pretrial release, he had been using drugs. The judge thought he would be safer at the medical facility. And as a judge, Lang says, it's hard to know exactly what's going on inside each of the 122 federal prison facilities. But when I see a medical doctor from the Bureau of Prisons write in essence, that the individual is receiving appropriate care. I tend to trust that. Uh, I certainly wish Mr. Youngbird were still alive and am sad that he passed away. It's just tough. That's how best I can answer. JoLynn Little wounded. Youngbird's aunt got a call in the early morning from the prison the week he died. Youngbird's mother was still asleep. I think I sat there for two or three hours, and then I woke up my sister and my uh, niece and told them. I just remember them screaming and crying. If he had been released, she said, at least they would have been closer. He died a horrible death in there by himself, and um, that's the hardest part was that um, he died by himself. Youngbird's truck was parked in front of her house. It waited there for more than a year after his death until the city finally came and towed it away. Meg Anderson, NPR News. I want to be a cop. Thank you, Katie. Words have meaning. That's what the city of Castroville says led to a change in their police department. The now former police chief there, Brian Jackson, was accused of using a racial slur during a murder investigation, and investigators say it was caught on camera. Castroville's city council accepted his resignation today. Words have power, and we must all choose our words very carefully. Um, Just as we choose the actions um, that support our fellow mankind, we need to condemn the ones that divide us, that oppress, and that subjugate. 
While the act of racism was condemned during the city council meeting, Castroville's mayor described Jackson as a flawed but good man. The city now moving forward, looking for an interim police chief. See, it used to be we could beat up minorities and nobody cared. It's the reason a lot of us joined the force. Hey, Mitch, you want to go down and arrest some homeless people but not be able to beat up any minorities? No, thank you. Yeah, no, I think we're good. Back here closer to home, an Oregon State trooper is facing allegations of misconduct. He's the target of an investigation and civil lawsuit after claims the Southern Oregon drug cop underreported stops and targeted minorities. Here's Kyle Boshi. From drug bus to saving puppies, Oregon State Police celebrated the work of trooper Travis Peterson. His accomplishments posted on social media. But now this drug cop from Southern Oregon is attracting attention for another reason, allegations of misconduct. Travis Peterson has been racially profiling on Interstate 5 and throughout the roads of Jackson County for years. Later this week, um, attorney he, Justin Rosas plans to file a class action lawsuit against Oregon State Police and Trooper Peterson on behalf of eight men who believe they were wrongly detained while driving through Southern Oregon. And part of this lawsuit is trying to look out for, the, for all of the over-policing of people who are just trying to, to move along and, and, and people of color predominantly, right, who are just trying to move along. A review of press releases and social media posts suggest over the past few years, Trooper Peterson and his canine have made numerous drug busts along Interstate 5 near Medford, seizing cash, cocaine, heroin, and meth. But court records indicate Many of those cases were later dismissed because the trooper allegedly conducted unlawful searches. And there were other problems. A memo from the Jackson County District Attorney shows Peterson failed to document hundreds of traffic stops. He didn't record some canine deployment, which impacts a dog's accuracy rating, and some evidence went missing. He did hide his stops evidence. He did hide his canine stops. They do continue to employ him. The attorney claims Trooper Peterson frequently stopped vehicles with out-of-state plates, where drivers looked like they were not from the area. In a tort claim notice, the lawyer said blatantly he targeted minorities. Peterson could not be reached for comment. He's currently on protected leave for unrelated reasons. In a statement, state police said OSP takes allegations of racial discrimination and evidence mishandling seriously and has zero tolerance for such behavior by its members. OSP investigates all allegations of misconduct and takes appropriate steps to address any behavior falling outside its policies, rules, procedures, or law. The lawsuit comes at a time when vehicle searchers have come under greater scrutiny. The Oregon Supreme Court made it harder for police to search vehicles without a warrant, and the state legislature just passed a bill that would prevent officers from pulling drivers over for a minor infraction and require officers to inform drivers they have the right to refuse a search during a traffic stop. Kyle Aboshi, KGW News. Words have power, and we must all choose our words very carefully. Y'all niggas, and you gonna be niggas forever, just like us, niggas. Todd Spitzer has gone from running a re-election campaign to now fending off calls for his resignation in Orange County. Spitzer, the OC district attorney, is accused of using racist language during discussion of a murder case involving a black defendant. And there's video 
that surfaced of him using the N-word over and over again in a speech that he made to an OC group. Gustavo Ariano is a columnist for the LA Times. He joins us as usual to talk about it. Hey, Gustavo. Hola, Steve. So two different issues here concerning Spitzer, both of them involving allegations of racism. I want to take them one by one. First, the, the comments that he made about black men dating white women. Tell us what he said and, and the circumstances of what he said. So this was a meeting that happened last fall, a Spitzer with some of the members of his uh, office in the district attorney's office. And they were discussing a murder case involving a black man who had murdered uh, two white people. And all we know about this meeting came from a memo by then prosecutor Ibrahim Beitia, who he said that in the context, context of the conversation that was going on with Spitzer, that Spitzer said, well, you know, in some cases, black men date white women to, quote, get themselves out of their bad circumstances and bad situations. And uh, everyone at that meeting was like, what are you talking about, Todd? You shouldn't be talking about things like that. But that Todd doubled down and said, no, this is pertinent to this particular case. So this happened back in October. But all of this came to light when a memo that Betia released in February made all those allegations. But by then, Betia had already been fired by Spitzer. Do we know why he was fired by Spitzer? <laughs> well, Todd says... Oh, this was involving Betia's conduct in a case from years ago, going back to the regime of Tony Rakakis, the previous Orange County District Attorney. Here's the thing with Betia. Todd Spitzer at one point called him his North Star. Like, this is the guy who I want as, like, my philosophical, the, the man who's going to show me the way. But after, you know, recently, Todd has maligned Betia as part of the Tony Rakakis regime of just lies and all of this stuff. So Todd tried to have it both ways. And now look where he's at. And, and by the way, we should say that Spitzer apologized. He, he told the L.A. Times that Betia misquoted him. And he actually described black men's motivation in dating white women as improving their stature in the community, which doesn't sound much better, to be quite honest. Yeah, that's. That's Todd for you. All right. Issue number two. Th this is a, a video uh, where Spitzer says the N-word multiple times. Tell us what was going on there. So this was video that was filmed during a 2019 banquet for a group of Persian lawyers, Iranian-American lawyers in Orange County. And Todd was talking about hate crimes. And Todd is very upfront saying, I cannot stand hate crimes. I'm going to push. So he was talking about a specific incident about a white supremacist who had beat up a black woman. And Todd was quoting him. And, the, you know, if you're a white supremacist, you're going to say the N-word multiple times. So video just emerged because this is, a you know, election season. And so people are telling Todd, like, you can't say the N-word as a white man. And Todd was saying, look, I was just saying it in the context of the conversation. And me personally, as someone who has covered hate crimes in Orange County, I could sympathize with and understand what Todd was going through. But at the same time, Todd, uh, you can't say that word anymore and, and not expect people to get very upset at you. And, and Spitzer says he, you know, he's he's quoting what this white supremacist said, using the N word over and over again. Yeah, no. And again, I understand where that's coming from. A lot of times when you cover hate crime, you some people would argue you should know how ugly the hate is. But at the same time, it's in the wake of 2020 and the country's ongoing conversations about a racial reckoning. You just can't say that word as a white man anymore. He's also, Gustavo, being accused of trying to cover these situations up, though, right? Like, is this akin to that old saying, you know, it's not the crime, it's the cover-up? 
So this is another memo filed by someone from the Newport Beach Police Department, a, a lieutenant, I believe, alleging that Todd is, was trying to cover his tracks about saying these words, this description of black men, and that imperiled the future of the case, which used to be a death penalty case. And now uh, the Newport Beach lieutenant and also a lot of Spitzer's critics are saying like, no, now you're not going to be able to get the death penalty in this because – uh, the defense attorney could easily go and say uh, there there's bias in this case. Spitzer is in the middle of a, of a re-election campaign against uh, the former Marine Corps judge advocate uh, Pete Harden. What does the Harden campaign say about all? I mean, I can imagine what they're saying, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Resign, yeah. Todd. Todd Spitzer's a racist. We cannot have someone like Todd Spitzer be the district attorney in Orange County. Vote Pete Harden. So now it's, you know, piñata season against Todd all over Orange County. I mentioned there have been some calls for him to resign. I mean, obviously, Pete Harden has called for him to resign. What do you think happens next? Oh, then the ACP in California has asked him to resign. A lot of district attorneys, Republican district attorneys, mind you, have pulled their endorsement of Todd. Todd's not going anywhere. At the end, it's going to be up to the voters in June to decide whether they want to go with Todd or Pete. And this is Orange County. Uh, Anywhere else you have a district attorney going through these allegations of racism the way Todd Spitzer is doing, he would either resign or show more penance. But that's not the way Todd Spitzer goes. And by the way, Orange County, we're still Orange County. Gustavo Ariano, columnist with the LA Times, and every week he joins us for KCRW's Orange County Line. Gustavo, thanks. Gracias. Tonight, a group of advocates is calling for a racial equity audit of Shelby County District Attorney General Amy Wyrick and her office. A letter from those advocates claims that Wyrick and the DA's office discriminate against black people. So far, at least two Shelby County commissioners support this audit. Once again, here's Action News 5's Bria Bolton. In a letter sent to the Shelby County Board of Commissioners, advocates mentioned widely discussed cases the DA's office recently prosecuted. Josh Spickler, executive director of Just City, says the cases are examples of how the legal system in Shelby County treats black people differently. We think it's long past time that this district attorney general's office answered to uh, outcomes like the ones we mentioned in our letter. Pamela Moses was granted a new trial after she was convicted of illegally registering to vote. A letter from the Tennessee Department of Correction claiming her rights had been restored was never presented at trial. The district attorney says that error is on TDOC for not turning over the document. Advocates compare that case to one where a white former Shelby County deputy accepted a plea deal after being convicted of raping a teenager. Brian Beck is now out on probation after pleading guilty to aggravated assault. The district attorney's office says this deal spared the victim from testifying, quote, in a difficult case to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. There may be perfectly good reasons for both of these outcomes, uh, but they are emblematic of a system, of a city, of a community that consistently treats black people differently. Two Shelby County commissioners support an audit. Commissioner and president of the National Association of Black County Elected Officials, Eddie Jones. I support any alleged injustices to, you know, be investigated. And president of the NAACP Memphis branch, Commissioner Van Turner. If there's to be an audit uh, regarding uh, how uh, citizens in this city and county are treated, how African-American citizens in this city and county are treated, 
I think that's something that should be applied city and countywide. We reached out to District Attorney General Wyrick for comment. She says in part, quote, these are divisive and inflammatory statements meant for a political goal and not for policy change. This organization and the people listed are clearly out of touch with the people I talk to every day in every community in Shelby County who believe criminals should be held accountable. Reporting in Shelby County, Bria Bolden, Action News 5. And Josh Spickler says they're hoping for a proposal and a vote from the county commission soon. If you'd like to read the letter sent to commissioners and the full statement from District Attorney Wyrick, you can head to our website, actionnews5.com. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, March 12, 2000. 22 so i have been told uh spring forward with logic uh moving the clocks up one hour i don't think they observe daylight saving time everywhere in the continental u.s but for the places that do uh clocks go up one hour incidentally sleep if i could take like 30 seconds allegedly white people have done a number of studies Sleep is so important and humans are so sensitive to the amount of sleep that they get. They have observed allegedly that just moving the clock forward one hour, there is an observable and significant increase in traffic accidents even on Monday. That's 48 hours after the clocks have been moved forward. People are still trying to get it together. That's how sensitive people are to getting adequate rest. So maybe go to bed a little bit early uh, if you're listening live Saturday evening. Maybe try to go to bed a little bit early the next two nights to compensate for the rest that we will miss out. Those of us who are moving our clocks forward spring forward with logic compensatory call in the number is seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate the number again seven six zero seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate a few things to share before we get started i normally do my uh i identify like i was gonna pick a black male that i identify uh, with his plight, especially now that I'm like convinced O.J. Simpson did not kill anyone way back in 1994. Uh, but oh, yeah, Orenthal James. Black male that I identify with for that. When, when they was that what they said, the black male, he will get with a white woman to improve his status in the community. Uh, I normally it's oh, Gus T. The black O.J. Simpson this time around, I could have said uh, Gusty Renegade, 
the Ryan Coogler. I guess he's I've never heard Ryan Coogler try to de-emphasize or say that he's not black or have anything like that attributed to him. So I could say Gus T, the Ryan Coogler. Uh, they had the report this week. I didn't play it where he apparently went to the bank uh, sometime a few weeks back and ended up they thought he was some sort of robber <laughs> and they had him handcuffed at the bank when he was trying to make a withdrawal from his account. I <clears throat> I cry or I laugh not to cry on this one for folks who don't know Ryan Coogler uh, is he directed Creed uh, he directed Marvel's uh, The Black Panther Fruitvale Station Michael B. Jordan was in many of those right I think maybe all of those yeah I think he was in all of those I didn't see Marvel's The Black Panther hated it didn't even see it but I said since 2017 anytime I hear anybody glowing oh, Marvel's Black Panther Wakanda forever you sound just like the white women in my Seattle yoga classes that notwithstanding regardless of my views on Marvel's Black Panther I didn't want Ryan Coogler to be shackled and mistreated so he goes to the bank importantly this happened the abomination of a city ATL Atlanta Georgia that's where he was attempting to go to the Bank of America and that's important because I was sharing this report with another victim investor in the cows in my brain computer I was thinking ooh this is in Atlanta I lived in Atlanta you go to the bank and everybody in the bank from the custodian every patron every teller the president is somebody classified as black so let's see what happened bank staffers mistakenly thought Ryan Coogler was staging a robbery so they called the cops and the famed director actually ended up in handcuffs briefly according to an Atlanta Police Department report obtained by TMZ Coogler was detained after stopping in a Bank of America to make a transaction back in January a completely legal transaction mind you but that's not how one teller took it Coogler walked in rocking shades, sunglasses, and a COVID face mask. Not uncommon, of course, but he handed the teller a withdrawal slip. Important, not a ransom note. A withdrawal slip that had a note written on the back. We're told this message read, I would like to withdraw $12,000 cash from my checking account. Please do Count the money somewhere else. I'd like to be discreet. And apparently they have a image of a withdrawal slip with this written on it. What I just read. Continuing. Understandable. Considering the amount of money he was getting. $12,000. But this led the teller thinking something suspicious was going on. And the cops were called for an attempted robbery. When officers arrived they detained two people waiting outside for Ryan in an SUV probably black people probably more black males and then went in and brought Ryan Coogler himself out in handcuffs if it means anything to anyone listening Mr. Coogler apparently had on a hoodie at the time of this encounter he did not have the hood on but he was wearing a hoodie a COVID mask and sunglasses that is like the spitting image of a rapist what I read just there continuing 
After an investigation, the police say this was all just a huge mistake. And the fault lies with the Bank of America employee who's described in the report as a pregnant black woman. Gusty, not surprised about that at all. Her being pregnant, I mean, you know. I guess maybe, you know, she was really pregnant. She could have been under some stress and maybe not thinking at her best. Maybe lots of things on your mind if you're pregnant. But it being a black female or a black male did not surprise Gus T at all for good old ATL. Continuing, according to the report, when the teller went to make the transaction on her computer, it triggered some sort of alert. So she told her boss Kugler was attempting to rob the bank and they called 911. In the end, cops realized this was a screw up and Ryan actually had done nothing wrong. They called him Ryan. Like, I'm sure these folks do not know him. Mr. Kugler had actually done nothing wrong. Sounds like Kugler wasn't too pleased. The report notes he asked for badge numbers of all the responding officers once everyone was released. Incidentally, you want to really get all ATL on this one? Uh, the image that I saw at least one of the officers who had him shackled appeared he also may be classified as a black male so you could have had a situation where Ryan Coogler goes into a bank he's not easily distinguishable and I mean hey Ryan Coogler for all of the films I mentioned I don't know is he on television like that every day? Maybe if it was closer to 2017 with Black Panther, maybe, but I don't know. He might just look like another, you know, potential rapist. Either way, he goes in, he's got on his sunglasses, hoodie, doesn't have the hood on, and he's got his uh, face mask on, COVID. Goes in, withdrawal slip with a note written on it. If you could count it out, my 12,000, be discreet, much obliged. I don't have any I can only say I can relate I've been to the bank and been harassed and all of that I thankfully have not been shackled yet thankfully but I can relate to having lots of problems and sometimes it was a black teller where it was the same you know this is not you we need a urine sample blood sample DNA test from both great grandparents if you have to dig them up then come back after you got the bodies exhumed and then I don't know uh, this urine is not uh, yeah we can't cash this sorry <laughs> I can I can totally relate Mr. Kugler but I mean that is how successful racists have been now mind you I've never worked at a bank I think we have some cows investors who have some bank teller experience the computer alert comes up she went to talk to her boss so it would be a lot of people involved but I guess this the way I think of it so if a white man came in under similar circumstances and presented a withdrawal slip with a note on it. Could you count this over there? Be discreet about it. Thanks. So I can get my 12K. They have their identification. Do you call the police and say that you think this is an attempted robbery? I'm not sure. Y'all can let me know. This kind of like yesterday when we had the report from uh, Carla in Florida saying that the black female went to her white co-worker who had been broadcast that she was married to a black male who was trying to come up right that's how he married her uh, and she said oh man your eyes look like they got some darkness around them have, have you been getting beat are you okay 
doing a little Laurental James on you? And the white woman was like, no, I'm fine. Matter of fact, if he ever did such a thing, he would be dead right now. <laughs> right on. Black male privilege. Yes, yes. Um, but the same thing where I said, wow, if it was known that she was married to a white man or engaged to a white man, would you have like publicly made that sort of comment? Like, wow, are you being beaten at home? Hmm. I don't know. Sorry, Mr. Kugler. White, or oh, excuse me, black male privilege in ATL, which is filled to the brim with black people. Anywho, uh, let's see. Next report that I also did not play. So, way back, not that even far away, in Florida, a little bit further south, in the springtime of it's been about a year basically springtime last year black male uh, Corey Pujols 27 years old I think that's important too 27 he's a manager at Dunkin Donuts a white man irate could they ran out of donut hole man I used to love Dunkin Donuts donut holes Woo, man my tubby days I could get like 60 of those it just <laughs> anyway so white man uh, Mr. Cook make sure I give his entire name Vanell Cook with a B Vanell Cook he goes in he's mad they ran out of donut holes or the glazed were stale or whatever he goes in he's mad nigga this nigga that you can give me my donut I want a bear claw I was like hey, hey, hey Mr. Pujols you know you're not gonna call me a nigger you know you got one more time to say that he is a no. Vinell Cook is a race soldier. In addition to being a race soldier, he is a convicted child rapist and pedophile. Now, see, that's one right there. I didn't find that up until way down the road. When it's black people, regardless of the circumstance, doesn't matter what happened with Michael Brown Jr., that's the first thing he's, they say. Cigarillos stealing no count Michael Brown Jr. When they talk about Tamir Rice, oh, he did have a gun. You know, he might have had a sawed-off shotgun ready to go out and do some raping and looting. Doesn't matter who they are. Oh, Eric Garner, he was out there slanging Lucy's. They didn't even have any evidence of that, but whatever. Uh, it's got to be a make sure to leave that this was not an angel. He had flaw. This was not no perfect. We're talking about a black male. He's probably about to rape someone right now. Von L. Cook was a convicted child rapist, child pornography, and all this. Like, what? What? Why is that not the lead? Child raping race soldier, Von L. Cook. So, uh, Mr. Pujols socks him. Whammo! Told you not to say that. Don't call me a nigger. Pops him. Von L. Cook, he's been on the planet raping and practicing racism for 70 years plus. Pops him. He goes down, hits his head, ends up dying. Now, we've talked about this for neutralizing racism repeatedly because this sort of thing happens all the time. A black person being in a work environment and gets called a nigger by a customer, patron, coworker, boss, all of the above sometimes. You have to have a code that is substantially more effective than what did you say? Wapow! We've seen, I've seen this, maybe you haven't. I've seen this over and over and over and over. Alan Iverson said that. They called me a nigger and fight erupts. And what did he say? Man, now I got to sit around here. Oh, he was in the same position. Man, 
a white man with a lot of power can decide whether or not I play basketball. And at this time, he was in high school, so we almost never heard his name other than Negro got arrested for being called a Negro. And that would have been that. So, Vinell Cook, pow, doesn't have an effective code, apparently. Pow, pops and kills, or excuse me, Mr. Pujols kills Vinell Cook. A year passes, all of this to be resolved. Now, that alone is a lot to think about. Imagine yourself at 27, if you got any folks that are younger, hopefully. You're in your teens or what have you. Imagine, I'm 27 years old and I got to sit for a year and think. Now, he was looking at felony manslaughter 30 years imagine that you're 27 years old am I going to be going to jail until I'm 60 and you got to wait for a year to see if that's going to be resolved now how fun does that sound does that in fact does that sound like a cool trade off a white man calls you a nigger bam you pop him and that's the trade off you get to spend the next year you, you pop him hard enough to kill him, in fact. So you get to kill a white man. You can spend the next year waiting. Am I going to have to go to prison, federal prison, for 30 years? All right. So we go to court. Bammo, what did they say this week? I believe a powerful white man. He decides, eh, okay, we will not do 30 years. You're a good coon. No criminal record. Young fella. And. This old raping race soldier did call you a nigger a few times. So, no jail time. Hey. All right. All right. However, you're going to be a convicted felon, felony battery. Two years house arrest. We're already in the. Ooh. Three years probation. Highlight that right there. 200 hours of community service this happened in Florida so just with being a convicted felon alone if there was nothing else anybody here think about your life from 27 if you're older think about how would my life have been different if I was a convicted felon black male from my mid 20s forward how would things be different for me and then that's a hey now is that worth it I'm going to be a convicted felon for the rest of my life. Now, is that worth it to kill a race soldier? If you're in Florida, allegedly they call themselves being progressive like, hey, we're not going to say that you're a felon, that you can't vote anymore. Forget that. You can vote not in old Ron DeSantis land. It's not so fast. If you pay back all your restitution and court costs and community service, then uh, maybe we'll let you vote for Ron DeSantis in 2024. We'll have to see. Can't own a gun. A whole lot of things change as you're a convicted felon. Have fun getting housing in some areas. Have fun getting a job. They might not even let you back in Dunkin' Donuts. You're a convicted felon. None of that is really what caught my attention about the report. It was the three years probation that's what caught my attention and the Vonnell Cook's son who's probably a race soldier too he might even be into all that child pornography and everything as well who knows say the fruit doesn't fall far from the tree isn't that the metaphor anywho his son said he wanted uh, Mr. Poolholz to serve five years in prison and five years probation 
got two years house arrest, three years probation. I wow, that is a long time to be on probation. You're on probation. All you have to do is get arrested, and that grounds for violation of the conditions of probation. You can be resentenced, which could mean prison time. This is like really, this is something that I've known for a long time. Like a whole lot of black people end up getting in trouble around that having probation because it's so easy to arrest a black person. I mean, you don't even have to do anything. You can just be in the area and what? What did you? Bam! Or it's very easy to arrest a black person. This is really in the forefront of my mind. That Duke Lacrosse case and all the you know chatter about the case. One thing I didn't know was that a number of those white male Duke lacrosse players had deferred charges before everything happened in March 2006 roughly 16 years ago from this month uh, wow oh my god it's tomorrow my goodness right there that's amazing Kyle's timing anyway William Cohen was just with us right we talked about that in reading his book one of the details I don't know if we talked about it there or oh, we did some of those white male players had deferred charges because of this incident and there were arrests those deferred charges bam they had to go back and got resentenced I didn't even know that like oh some had to go back in court and they got like charges and what I think one of them he had an assault charge from before where it was deferred and then because of this now you got sentenced now you got that on your record for a moment until you can get it expunged and all the rest of it but I mean these are powerful white people being a black person for three years and I'm not even sure like so is this two years house arrest and then after that the three years probation starts like oh my god like whoo and then you gotta go and see your PO officer on a regular oh again now all of that processing all of that so is that worth it is that a worthy trade? Three years probation where you got to hope, pray to white Jesus that nothing happens. You're not in an area where something happens or anything like that. Traffic related. No issues for three years. Two years house arrest. 200 hours of community service. And you're going to be a convicted felon. And it's not going to be they're going to have sympathy, I suspect, from other like, oh, we called you a nigger and this was a child. It's going to be you're a convicted felon who convicted con a convicted felon who killed an elderly white man. From your mid 20s for the rest of your life. Does that sound like a trade off for being able to kill a 70 plus year old white man? The reason I say all of this, I reported the sentencing was announced this week that, you know, this is what it's going to be from this case from last spring. When I posted this, we had cows listeners who were saying, hey, I think that's a good deal. And they had the little laughter emojis like rolling on the floor laughing. I think that's a good deal. Being able to kill a race soldier, and you don't even get jail time. Now, they did say victims guaranteed qualified. V G. I would hope we use some lots because I don't know 
if Mr. Pujols has offspring, I'm sure they did wonders for their black self-respect and mental health since we're talking about suicide, especially for young black males like a 27-year-old Mr. Pujols. If he has offspring, male or females, I'm sure that was wonderful for them or his parents or anybody who, you know, attempted family concerned about him to have to spend the last year wondering, is he going to be gone for the next 30 years? And like I said, even him being on house arrest for the next two years, three years of probation and a convicted felon until death. I'm sure that's going to be great. Race soldiers do a lot of name calling. I talk about composure all the time on neutralizing workplace racism. It is important really all the time and especially right now so many people are anxious furious stressed medicated armed that situation could have been a whole lot different too if Vonnell Cook child raping racist had a handgun and you pop it maybe you knock him on the ground but he doesn't die and he pulls out his firearm and you got a glazed donut it's a whole lot of things to think about. That's what I mean about keeping your composure. Unless I'm ready to die right. You called me a nigger. You might have a firearm. You don't know if I have a firearm. You don't know if I'm an MAM. Uh, uh, what is it? MMA fighter. You don't know. I don't know about your skills. You could be a martial artist. You might have a whole gang outside. You might be an off-duty enforcement officer. I don't know. And you don't know. But you called me a nigger. And I'm ready to die right now I'm ready to go to prison I'm ready to be a convicted felon for the rest of my life right now because you called me a nigger you are certainly qualified to make that decision again I would I said spring forward with logic try to make the best possible decisions I would hope decisions that keep us out of greater confinement I think that's one thing that helps us replace white supremacy with justice we don't want to be like Brandon Jackson 25 years in greater confinement get out and you can't even figure out how to make a phone call that sounds like moving towards universal man universal woman to get the phone call you got a whole lot of folks that's you know too they can't figure out how to use the phone Brandon Jackson said he went to the Piggly Wiggly he tried to just get a few vittles go home get myself a meal a few chickpeas here spinach here bok choy here I waited for 30 minutes because I don't know anything about self-checkout. And you want to tell me with like a straight face, black male. So we got it both end of the spectrum. So you can take Ryan Coogler and you end up in the same place, right? Same place. Bill Cosby, Ryan Coogler or Brian Jackson. You all end up in the same place. Where's the black male privilege? At least Ryan Cougar knows how to get through self-checkout, I think. 
I can generally get through that myself. Split decision, that's what they call it. Mind me of Floyd Mayweather. That's another privileged black male. Uh, I guess Jesse Smollett, you get that in too. He's privileged too. End up in the same place. Uh, one more thing I'll get in before we get to the folks who called it. It was a lot I could have said about the report in North Carolina. They had the slave auction where they said the young fella, we make him the slave master because he knows how to handle them. white people are ignorant these were children that they were talking about but white people are ignorant about racism said his friend went for 350 but the thing in that report the thing was they said once they the school handled this and they were all pussyfooting and didn't even tell anybody that oh they did a slave auction and he knows how to handle them <laughs> where did he get that name where did he learn how to handle them they didn't do all that they just well we just had an incident and, and you know it was something real with race and race relations and you know it's all taken care of we got it you know it's handled uh so after they do all that and the children come the white little race soldiers come back and they say the little race soldier hit the little child, the black child with the baseball cap, hit him, so, whoops, 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 my, my fault, my fault, my fault, it, it slipped, it's, it's, it's wet, see, I'm, my fault, my fault, my fault, brother, all right, Wait, oh, whoops, whoops, I'm sorry, I got your shin, that, my bad, my fault, my fault, it slipped, it's, it's, it's raining, you see, it's springtime, we still got a little bit of moisture on the butt, my fault, my fault, let's try it again, whoop, oh, slip, got you in the groin, whoops, my fault, what do you call that, two balls, <laughs> you see what I, my fault, brother, my fault, let me help you up there, my fault, my fault, Ian, they said, he just accidentally, and just kept hitting me with the baseball. But white people are ignorant about white supremacy, racism, and white children are better about it, meaning they do not practice racism, white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, There's many other things I could say. I'll stop there. Um, Metaphors, I do request if we could not use metaphors for the broadcast. Uh, there were a number of interesting phrases put together when they were talking about Violet Wilson uh, with the HBCU. Uh, and they talked about how in Indianapolis, the business school, they allowed one black student at a time, not per class, like at a time. So the white announcer for Michigan Public Radio she says uh, oh I know that really makes you feel like you're part of the gang that's one like last week where the announcer said posse like yeah, I thought we were talking about people in a business school why not makes you feel like a part of the business a part of the company a part of the class let's take the low hanging fruit metaphor take the easy one a part of the class no 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 Negros are part of the gang Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is the same thing as posse from last week. Is always something criminal and nefarious with the Negros. And then she came right back from that, and she said in the same report they were talking about Violet Wilson, uh, and they said that she asked how many hoops or what types of hoops did she have to jump through. Generally, that's you know I think of like circus animals, dogs and seals and that sort of thing. Because I I don't. Do you see people jump through hoops? I don't. It's generally animals. Criminals, animals, thugs. 
This was someone who started a school, Violet Wilson, for Women's History Month. That metaphor is used commonly, but that's why I encourage. Let's not use metaphors. And in my view, consciously, subconsciously, white people use those sort of metaphors and phrases that lets you know what they really think about us. Gangs, posses, animals, jumping through hoops, all of that. Boys and gals. Anywho, uh, if we could not use metaphors, that would be super appreciated. I will give reminders. The number again is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, if you could take about five minutes to share your thoughts, observations, that would be grand. Uh, if you have additional thoughts or questions, just make sure everyone gets at least their one chance to speak. And then you can rejoin and give us your thoughts, observations. Uh, folks have thoughts on what they heard and or their own commentary, counter racist suggestions, observations. Uh, lines should be open. Feel free. Let's see. First couple of folks who dialed in with the hand up. Greetings, everyone. Uh, retired firefighter in Florida, Ron DeSantis land. Yes, sir. Yes. Uh, I was just, uh, first thing I was thinking about, uh, the, uh, the, uh, movie producer, I think, uh, the black male movie producer who was uh, accosted, detained uh, in Atlanta. Uh, it, it brought to my mind, uh, there are, at the bank that I'm a member of, there are big signs uh, stating about uh, what not to have on your head, a cap. Uh, I wear base. I wear baseball caps a lot. Uh, sometimes I forget. Some, uh, for the most part, I'm, I'm making it a habit now to not have it on when I go in the bank. Uh, of course, sunglasses, uh, and of course, not a hoodie on your head. Uh, it probably would be to your best interest uh, as a black male to follow follow those rules. Uh, or follow those, I don't know if it's a rule or not, or, or a suggestion. <laughs> uh, to, it's probably to your, your best interest to do it, uh, because at worst, you would, well, at, at the least, you, you, it's possible you can be inconvenienced by being detained like uh, the uh, black male that uh, uh, detained, detained, made, uh, went viral. His detainment went viral. Uh, firearms. I have found out that uh, if you're going to decide to uh, get possession of a firearm, uh, constantly get uh, training. Uh, 
and I don't mean I don't mean a a, a two week course and then and then stop. No, no, be constant with it. Uh, I have uh, carried uh, firearms before. I've also carried them in my vehicle before, but I have I've stopped doing that uh, because I I I'm uh, learning to think that the best self-defense weapon that a non-white person can have is counter-racist codification. Uh, and, uh, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not going to uh, be an advocate against anyone having a firearm and, you know, uh, that sort of thing. But I would suggest that it, it's, uh, you're consistent at training uh, with it. Any up-to-date type of training, you are, you make it available to yourself to uh, study, practice uh, with people who know what they're doing as far as the training is concerned. Uh but uh, I would say when it comes to counter-racist codification, uh, you don't necessarily need someone else uh, other than uh, joining the cows. <laughs> that would help. Uh, or some other non-white people who are interested along with yourself and uh, you... Uh, follow one of those four things that Mr. Fuller suggests, which is exchanging views and understandings on the subject of racism and white supremacy. And that's all I can think about right now. Thanks for listening. Very logical from uh, retired firefighter in Florida. Um, I know with Mr. Kugler, uh, at least with the reports that I've seen, he actually didn't have the hood part of the hoodie on his head. He just was wearing the hoodie. He did have on the sunglasses. He had on a cap uh, of some sort and uh, he had on his COVID-19 face mask. Uh, but I was even thinking this did happen in January for North America. Most folks, even in Atlanta. That is winter time. Actually, uh, generally for a lot of people, that's like the coldest part of winter. Like, man, that is. I could see where. Oh, yes, it's a little chilly. Let me grab my hoodies that I can warm up and, you know, wham, is that that's one of those like. So if he was a white guy and what I said before, anywho, but I think that's very logical. The, the suggestions and they have those what you were talking about, like uh, signs at the bank. They do have those at some of the banks here. Not all. I don't know if they had that, if that was the issue at that bank. Um, that wasn't in the report. I don't know if they, you know, asked him to remove all that or what have you, but I think that's a good uh, protocol to follow to try as best you can to, well, not the face mask, maybe if you want to keep that on right on, but the glasses, hat, hood, best you can to try to remember to remove those items as you're going into the bank uh, to try as best you can to minimize not saying that that will 
still a system of white supremacy racism. So, you know, just try to do the best you can to minimize um, the right firearms. Man, so important. So many things I can say about that one as well. Um, but yeah, because they generally, if you're getting training, firearms training on a regular basis, they will discuss making sure that you have it properly stored. So if there's anyone in your residence who might access the gun, if they're having mental health issues and that sort of thing, uh, that the gun, they won't have easy access to it and all that sort of thing. Like that's a huge part of it. Lots more that I can you know say about that as we proceed. Uh, anywho, much obliged, uh, retired firefighter in Florida. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up. see folks are spectating I guess to have their hand up while they're getting their uh, thoughts together the much obliged to Toni Morrison we did get a little bit of her segment from the bluest eye in book cows book club one of my all time favorites uh, in this segment uh, talking about the situation in Ukraine and how mainstream media outlets white dominated news outlets uh, have reported on the situation and so relatable and it's such a tragedy scene white people blue eyes and blood and I've seen like there's numerous snippets from all over the world of that exact sort of content uh, being broadcast just making it flagrant what it is but an and why the color sickness that so many non-white people have in terms of skin bleaching and wanting all these blue eyes Tony Morrison blonde hair and all the rest of it why would that be the case right there white supremacy racism as usual uh, let's see folks still spectating getting their thoughts together anybody that did think that that was a, a solid trade off you get to kill a raping <laughs> race soldier and then you get to be a convicted felon from your mid 20s till death anybody think that is a good trade off no, sir. No, no sir. No. no, sir, it's not. Yeah, and that's, that's something, that has something to do. Uh oh, I, I hear somebody else. I was about to say that has, something to do. that has something to do with uh, why I think uh, the best self defense for a non white person in a normal, not, well, we're about to say, use the word normal, but in an everyday situation is to be consistent on on studying and versed on counter-racist codification because that right there would assist you. Uh, you know, if your expectations are to whereas you expect a white person to call you a nigger, then you probably are going to be able to handle that instance better. You're probably going to be able to handle the instance better. And you know, the total ramifications of, uh, by a, that comes from a white person 
directing that to you. You know, that you, you're going to be prepared to respond more to your advantage to survive the encounter. But uh, no, not a day in jail for somebody calling me nigger. Not 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 an hour, <laughs> in you know in in jail, it's not worth it. Think retired firefighters done? Nick over the road? Yes, sir. Greetings, greetings, us, greetings, everybody. Um, no, that is definitely not one. I completely agree with retired firefighter. Um, um, wow, dying, dying while waiting to be released from prison. That's that's crazy. That's crazy, man. And from going from getting COVID dead in a week. Yeah, that's that's wild right there. Um the the OSP officer um them giving notifications that you can refuse a search or, or whatnot. I mean I I would assume that would be consistent with the constitution. I don't know why they would need to come out with a policy for that. Um Oh yeah, and one thing too, they I mean, I guess it's a maximum or something, but they say once you're eighteen there's no ignorance for the law. I think the only exceptions are like minors or mentally compromised people. So you're supposed to know your rights already or your protections in the Constitution because they really don't give rights. Um, oh, yeah, the Black Panther with the, the thing with Ryan Kruger. Man, you know what? From my experience with being in business, um, Gus, there's a there's a merchant window. Like, we don't go where or like, I guess people with personal accounts go. We don't when we handle a business like that, it's a totally different section and it's a totally different experience. Um Yeah, and they actually have like what's called the cash room in some of these banks where they actually take you and kinda allow large amounts of cash or whatnot or do large transactions. It's it's interesting that he would have a problem with that. Um and I've done business or banked with Bank of America. And um, oh yeah, and that just goes to show you that money don't matter, man. They they don't care how much money they give you. Uh, it's just a tool for control. I mean, they could flip the switch and print as much money as they want. So far as I'm concerned, money is not their motivation. Um, and yeah, the Black Panther movie, man, it was it was sad. A very sad movie. It's a bunch of black on black crime and white savior stuff. You know, it's 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 weird. It was a weird movie to me, and um, yeah, I'm, that's all I have to say. I'm I'm blind. Much obliged, Nick. Over the road, uh, I'm actually not a fan of any of the movies that I mentioned: Creed, Fruitvale Station, Marvel's Black Panther. The ones that I saw, at least, I thought they were anti-black, too. So it may be that I just don't like any of his films, but I still 
did not want him to be mistreated. And I think it may have been because I'm sure at this point, Ryan Coogler has like his bank where they do know him like, oh, my gosh, come on in, Mr. Coogler. And we got, you know, fresh baked chocolate cookies waiting on you and all the rest of it. Um, I suspect this may not have been his regular bank. Uh, Bless you, I guess, for the person having some issues. But, yeah, I suspect this may not have been his regular bank. Uh, Let's see. Anywho, uh, other folks who dialed in that we've not heard at all, if you have commentary. Gus, may I be heard? Yes, sir. Hey, uh, good evening, Gus. Uh, I would just like to add something. When I was in age a couple of years ago, I was in boot camp, and <clears throat> I had this white male marching behind me every day when I was in boot camp, kicking me, kicking me, uh, pushing me, and calling me nigger every day. Every day he was doing that for, I tolerated it for like two months. And one day we were marching with our rifle and he did it. He kicked me and I fell and I hit my head. And when I got up, I took the rifle and I clapped him upside the head. I thought I, I thought I killed him because he was on the floor flattering like a chicken. But at that time I didn't care anymore because I tolerated this abuse for two months, but they had put me in the, in the military brig for, uh, for two weeks because they, they thought he wasn't going to make it, but he came out of his coma. But I can understand why that man in uh, the donut house uh, went after this, this guy. Because, see, these real soldiers, they, they, they're very calculated. They know what they're doing. They know how to provoke people. And they know that they, they keep pushing, they keep pushing, they keep pushing. They know it's going to happen. So they're very, very calculated. But I, I learned a very valuable lesson then to keep my composure. Up to now, my job, I could see them still doing it. But, you know, I, I try to keep my composure. But I, I, I feel for that guy at the donut shop, man, because these people, they like you said, I always say, they're not ignorant about racism. You know, they know what triggers people, you know, and they keep doing it. They keep doing it. And uh, it's just like in a basketball game, you know. Uh, you see a guy flop, and he knows what to do to, to draw the foul. And, and, and cause the uh, the referee to cause you know to draw a fall on the other guy. Same thing they run, man. So uh, you know that's all I got to say. But I, I feel for that guy at the donut house, you know, because I, I was in the same situation. And by the grace of God, I had some good, uh, some great guys from New York, some brothers from New York, who uh, showed great uh, black black self respect and came to testify and to said that they witnessed this. Uh, for the last two months, and that's the only thing that saved me from from being locked up a long time. Anyhow, Gus, thanks for all you do, man. I really appreciate what you do. Thanks. And I'll, 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 I'll meet the line. Much obliged, sir. <clears throat> thanks for sharing. Um, I mean, that right there, that's, you know, this. that's what I said. It's so common. Those type of incidents. Exactly what you said. We're race soldiers. They're trying to provoke us, you know. That I'm sure you're not the first uh, black trainee that he had done that to, you know, ride up and, you know, kick you every day. Nigga, this, nigga, that, come on, go faster, move faster. What are you going to do? You know, all that love doing that sort of thing, you know. And then you retaliate or what have you. Women, I mean, military prison, my God. Like, oh my Lord. Like, they can get medieval. Uh, and I'm not saying that trying to be funny or anything. Like, oh my goodness. Like, uh, Wow. 
we might not even find out like what happened uh, about, you know, all of the punishment and everything like that. Like that is one place you do not want to be military prison. My goodness. Um, but a composure. And especially if he died, my God, you, I suspect you wouldn't be with us right now if he had died. Like, oh, my God. Like, uh, wow. Composure. I just I can't say it enough. Roy soldier, that is a huge aspect of their uh, system uh, to provoke us into doing things so that they can really and I mean a lot of times they'll have all kinds of elaborate retaliations oh you know you did this and get that St. Allen Iverson these these sort of situations have been playing out for decades and decades and decades like oh yes you know maybe he called you a coon but you can't sock him in the face just because he called you a coon now uh, you know we'll have to put you in prison for the next 30 years or 50 years and fire everyone in your family or sometimes we burn down the whole town like lots of that in the system of white supremacy racism but compo- you gotta expect the name calling you just got to and it's, like I said especially now so many people are rowdy so many people are armed they may as he said they thought all this out it easily could be yeah let me go and call him a sambo Got my six sour. We just came back for the range. I'm ready to roll. Much obliged, sir. Uh, the number is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. I forgot to include. We are... We should be on the air on Tuesday, March 15th. The Ides of March did my Julius Caesar as required by white educators. Uh, so Tuesday, March 15th, we should have uh, Rusty Hawkins as a guest on the program. He wrote the book, The Bible Told Them So. I think this book is hilarious, like crack up funny. I don't think it was written as like a comedy. I know it was a history book. Specifically, it's a history book about uh, re- the religion of white supremacy. And this is one of the few books white supremacy is in the title of this book. The main title, the Bible told them so. But then the white supremacy part is in the subtitle. But the, the book is about South Carolina specifically uh, during the civil rights years and how white people specifically used Christianity, the Bible to justify their opposition to civil rights, uh, their dedication to white supremacy, racism, Negroes are not going to our schools, coming to our church, you know, whatever else. Uh, it is amazing. Uh, just as I've been reading it and it's so many times in the book, there'll be like white pastors speaking and they will be responding to there'll be like a minority element and I mean minority in numbers so like a small number of white people who are verbalizing right hey maybe we should do right by the niggers right we say we're Christians we should all you know treat you know treat your neighbors you treat me and all that right okay we we should be we should say that right Christians we support racial equality so this was being said like in some of the broader national organizations when the individual like churches would hear this, we're like, what? Do what? Look, and it's like, like all of the, because everybody wrote letters back then, the way people text now. So they got all these letters and things, cor- of correspondence 
of white people writing and being like, look at here. I hear all that that you're talking about. Uh, so if your daughter comes home with a Negro, you're all about this integration then? And so the white person, of course, said, no, 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 absolutely not. Now, come on now, you know, Negroes is Negroes. And they said, well, no, 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 that's exactly what you're talking about. That's what all this is. That's exactly what's going to happen. They start sitting together in school and then they start sitting together in church and everything. And then, you know, that raping nigger and all the rest of it. And I'm not going to do it. And in fact, white Jesus told me that the nigger is not supposed to be in. You're not. And matter of fact, I don't like anything you got to say anyway. I'm canceling my subscription. And it's just page after page after page of that. Everything I just said just happening over and over and over. And white Jesus religion of white supremacy even fire talk about you will get in trouble with other white people if you are ignorant or not doing what you are supposed to do he had some white minister he didn't even go he wasn't out picketing he wasn't sending money to dr king anything like that wasn't preaching about racial integration none of that just had told one of his homies other white man that oh yeah you know i agree i think the uh brown v board of education decision was right i think yeah we should treat everybody the same Linus, do what? All right, and he's talking to the pastor like, okay, I'm gonna tell you what I'm gonna do, brother. Uh, if that's your private view, you don't have any place in a church of mine, religion of white supremacy. And in fact, I am going to tell the fellow deacons what you said, and we will see about that. Hmm. And they went and fired him like within that week. Like he said, what? Oh yeah, he's out of here, nigga loving preacher. Get out of here. And they went letting him page after page after page and how this is what they stuck to to justify white supremacy racism when all said and done civil rights act and blah 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 and all that they didn't just stop it just morphed into the same thing we'll just verbalize it a little differently that's why you have all the in what they call evangelical christians that they was oh man all these folks are supporting donald trump and everything like where did this come from extension of the same thing obviously that's not all of the white people who practice racism but that is a significant chunk uh in this part of the world but that is the book for tuesday the author rusty hawkins the bible told them so the religion of white supremacy the two words for the program strom thurman insert cowbell Normal time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. White guests only. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, uh, if you have commentary to share, line should be open. Proceed. May I be heard? Caller in Florida? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Um, there was a part of the audio segment where, yeah, I think it was the the, uh, the school in North Carolina, I think. You know, I was thinking about that too, uh, how at such an early age where uh, white children learn to practice racism, white supremacy, uh, and, you know, I guess it was that white kid who threw the baseball. And they'll do things like that and try and say, oh, you know, I didn't mean to do it. And, you know, you know, my hand slipped or just any kind of 
um, excuse to help uh, practice their racism. Uh, I think I did remember seeing an article on that, or maybe someone posted a video about that, about the slave auction. Um, and, uh, you know, and I like how you added the, uh, that audio clip with, uh, President Obama, you know, where he was saying about the different generation and saying that they're better than we are. You know, I, I think about that audio as well. Um, and the segment where they were talking about the senses and the different classifications. Um, you know, I really think of how, how do they even conduct doing that? So I don't know what they meant about saying that the, I don't know if they meant like the borough exactly or what part of or a branch of the government that is, is going to do an investigation on that. Um, because I don't know how undercounted black people were. I think that's what the clip mentioned. Uh, and as far as the segment where they were talking about how the media is covering the, uh, the Ukraine situation, um, and the conditioning, right. Uh, on how the world has been, uh, coerced to think and prioritize, you know, valuing white people, uh, white life pretty much. And it seemed like the guy was trying to say, oh, well, you know, uh, some of these people, you know, they don't, they don't know what they're doing. I guess he was talking about the people at the different companies, but, you know, I just don't, I don't agree with that. You know, they know what kind of propaganda, uh, the kind of, um, imagery they, they support putting out. I mean, cause just today I was watching a news report where I noticed consistently, uh, even on my, where I'm at locally and national, nationally, uh, the world news, they'll have a mugshot. If they say a crime was committed, they'll have a black person's face, black male, they have black male's face, um, to go along with the report they're, uh, doing. But if it's a, they say it was like a stabbing or something like that, or, Someone did an overdose on fentanyl. I think that was one of the recent ones. You'll see them having a blur on, like, the people they got on the stretcher, if anyone's seen that recent story. But you'll see a pale, a pale complexion. They won't, they won't even show that, but they'll show, they'll show the black person. They say, well, this person sold them some, uh, cocaine laced with fentanyl, right? But they, they, they called them victims, but they, participated in drugs, uh, doing drugs, cocaine, but they don't show them as suspects. And when they do the, the shootings and things like that, the mass shootings and stuff, they'll just describe what happened and they'll show the visuals and the environment with the yellow tape up and the sirens and, you know, the red and light, red and blue lights and stuff, but they won't show the suspect. Okay. The visual, the mugshot. Um, and my last one is they'll, there's a, a town called Micanopy, uh, not too far away from me. And it, it was, a a recent report about two black females, uh, winning a commission seat for the city of commission. So on the report, it said that 
an anonymous, that's the term they use, an anonymous uh, citizen sent out a letter. And in a report, they said to mainly residents, say mainly white families, you know, saying that the um, the commission leader, a black male, Chris Stokes, uh, helped these two black females get into their commission, get into their commission, but they won, you know, they won their elections. And they said, well, this guy was seen um, putting down signs for the black female. They named the black female uh, the one that won the election. So it's no telling what they're going to do for our taxes. And it was the way it was worded was uh, to, it says, dear our residents, dear residents. So I guess people uh, was able to find out that this person's practicing racism. But of course, at the end of the report, it says, oh, well, this, this doesn't have anything to do with your color or where you come from, you know? So I'm just some, I'm just a kind resident. That's how they like the word things. So, uh, I wanted to make those reports and, uh, thanks for allowing me to speak. Thank you. Much obliged color in Florida. Um, that is, I think a number of folks have noted that where they will gleefully. And I mean, that's been another pattern for year, just like with the census for years. That's one with the U.S. census where this is not just the, oh man, the Rona messed everything up. You know, we couldn't uh, get the census takers to go out and count correctly. And then people were all stressed and they didn't want to have contact. And so people didn't fill out the point. And this goes back decades and decades and decades and it's the same thing they don't ever come back and say oh man we overcounted the negras wow we we added an extra 10 million negras never it's always man we undercounted our negras which i don't believe i mean you can't have a system of domination and you aren't really sure about how many negras are here I just don't believe that like I'm very sure they know how many niggers are here they might go out and mess up the census or whatever if they're talking about oh for funding purposes oh yeah let's undercount the niggers so we don't you know serve the areas or what have you but I mean I'm sure and if this is serious we only do this every decade it shouldn't it be important I moron Gus says strive for accuracy it would seem like if this is important people go back and reference census records from like oh my lord centuries I mean forever really as long as they can get them people going back and doing studies of trends and population that sort of thing they go back and look at census records forever so I mean this is really important not just for like right now and funding and all that they talked about uh, redistricting and all the rest of it but for like forever ever this is important so we should get this corrected like immediately not just oh we messed it up oh well we'll get it right in 2030 and especially not if we're just gonna we'll blame it on Trump this time around like it certainly wasn't his fault all the other decades when it was messed up and black people were undercounted so let's not use that as a tired lame excuse this time around just do it correctly you can waste money to go out and bomb people and everything else. You can't invest a few extra dollars to get the proper population statistics 
for our great country as they say that's not making America great again <laughs> get the accurate census count you're lying to me man just make it plain you're lying to me uh, let's see oh with the searches I meant to say that when they were talking about uh, in Oregon it's literally right down the road from Gus T they said uh, part of it they felt the solution getting rid of some of these racist uh, enforcement officers uh, and they said uh, having something I guess in place to inform people about their right to decline a search we've talked about that I've suggested recommended that for years and that's not just something that I say I implement that I've talked about times where I've been stopped by enforcement officer and I had to say that well I didn't have to but that was what I chose I've used it in every time it has worked flawlessly sir ma'am officer I know you're just doing your job I do not consent to searches of my vehicle my person or my property without a warrant thank you kindly that's the exact way that I've said it to them not an attitude not yelling cursing grousing all the rest of it as I every time I just oh okay they have vignettes we had uh, Steve Silverman white man suspected racist on the program repeatedly uh, he has documentaries that uh, give vignettes on the incorrect way to do this to carry out what I just said if you're in a vehicle if you're at your house if you're just walking down the street uh, the correct way to do it and then incorrect ways of carrying that out but I always say that and even if you say that they say shut up coon you don't tell me what to do I'll get my nigger knocker and go upside your head now I'm searching the car Mr. now what does Mr. Fuller say you don't fuss you don't fight and you don't flee say okay officer I'm not consenting to the search and that's all they can go through they search whatever they come through and say they found you know five kilos of cocaine or whatever <laughs> you know you're not interfering but just that alone I have seen there are many reports where that caused the case to be thrown out where the defendant get a lawyer sometimes you don't even need Johnny Cochran the late you can just get a mediocre attorney and he didn't have a search warrant I declined to accept yes you can search the vehicle I declined he didn't have a search warrant and they threw it out like yep he didn't accept and you just you know decide you're going to be Rambo do whatever you want or you decide that you're going to be an outlaw and not follow proper policy and procedure really that's you're not going to adhere to the constitution of the United States for unlawful searches I'm just going to do what I want to do oh okay well sometimes white person on the bench says well no that doesn't count so even if you did find five kilos of cocaine or whatever else that is not admissible so that is my recommendation and it's been my experience that enforcement officers generally do not tell you this I think the caller had said that as well they don't share that with you that's something that you have to know so flexyourrights.org he has documentaries on YouTube multiple time guest on the cows uh, where I thought was very constructive I've used it repeatedly has worked flawlessly for Gusty. I will continue to use and recommend that strategy. Uh, let's see. I think President Obama, before I nap, see if any other folks have comments here. I think President Obama sometimes, like, he made that statement about uh, young white people being better about all of this and they're not racist. Like, he made that just for us. 
like nobody will have a better appreciation over the years for that statement and reflecting on it and thinking about it and applying it to what we see young white children they're not racist really Obama really white guests only. that's right right there white guests only white guests only uh, other folks commentary that they want to make sure they get in the number 720-716-7300 decode 564-943 pound press star 61 if you would like to participate uh, any other commentary folks want to get in can I be heard yes sir Nick over the route alright uh, yes sir um, this is a uh... I, I was kind of heavy on the don't fight, don't fuss, don't flee. Um, and I had to think of a way, like, how can you do this? The fussing part, really, because that's kind of what got Sandra Bland killed. And so I came up with, a, with like a six-part spiel. If you were to say anything, what I, well, what I decided, to not make a mistake and say the wrong thing, I had to figure out what to exactly say. And like what you said when you brought up, I don't consent to search. Um, I kind of figured a traffic stop, you got to know how it go, like how they're trained or supposed to do it. So you'll know when they're not doing their job. And it's real simple. They pull you over. They walk up to your car. They say, my name is Officer Nick with LAPD. I pulled you over for not using your signal. Got to have your license, registration, and insurance. They go back to their car. They write your ticket, come back, have you sign it, and give their little spiel. And then they leave. That's how it's supposed to go. And they'll do stuff like walk up and say, do you know why I pulled you over? They're not supposed to do that. That's when you know that they're not doing their job. It's when they deviate from how they're trained. And this is when I bring in my spiel. One I need my lawyer present during all questioning. Um, number two, I'll do what you say so I don't get, um, um, so I'm not injured or, or die. The third one is, can I get your supervisor? And the fourth one is, I'm invoking my constitutional protections, like with the I don't consent to searches and, and all of that type of stuff. I mean, the only question I have is, am I free to go? And if they say no, that's when you know that you're under arrest and they're doing an investigation, which can turn into a criminal investigation. So I say from the beginning, say those only things, those four things and the only one and that one question. Everything else, where are you going? Um, how's your day going? You know why I pulled you over? All of those questions, do not answer them. They even offer you a warning to get you to talk to them. Me personally, I'll take my ticket not to have those conversations. Because if they ask you for your name and you don't give them your middle name but it's on the license, that could be grounds for lying to a police officer. It's, it's that simple. So just say those things. And if, they, and if they actually take you to jail, the only other thing you need to tell them is any dietary concerns or any health issues. Outside of that, don't say anything until you talk to your lawyer. Period. Supervisor, protections, uh, I need my lawyer, and I'll do what you say. 
and you do what they say. Like Gus said, get out the car, get out the car. Um, that's why I came up with the hotline. So some like anybody could call, and they and they remind you, don't fight, don't fuss, don't flee, and you know what to say. And that phone call is recorded. I think at the end of the day, when they look at that body cam footage or listen. Fussing about them articulating the reason to pull you over. If you're not doing any of that, I think your check may be bigger. The one thing that I found is that when they practice their racism, they give you an opportunity to get paid for it, for forcing you into that role. So those five things and that one thing, if they take you to jail. Um, that's all I got to say. If you have any questions, let me know. Nick over the road. Much obliged, sir. If you have any folks looking for talking about community service, do some volunteering, counter racist work. Let me know. Pass your information along to Nick over the road. Can help out with the hotline. Still looking for our volunteers. Uh, I know with enforcement officers, I mentioned uh, flex your rights. That's in the documentary as well. That question: Am I free to go? Very important. That one instead of having to sit around and do a whole lot of woofing and end up, you know arguing, cursing, and all the rest of it. Whoa, 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 whoa. Am I free to go? Question lane. Now, moment of truth. Now, there could be, there are situations where you aren't under arrest, but they'll say, no, you're not free to go either. It might be a situation where you're going to be detained for questioned or whatever. Now, anything, if you're not being arrested, all oh, this is supposed to be brief. Like, it's not supposed to be some indefinite detainment if I'm not under arrest. I'm just, you know, being questioned for whatever reason. Get your questions on the road for whatever reason why I'm being detained and, you know, am I free to go? And I've even been in that situation where I asked, am I free to go? And they said no. They started making a bunch of statements. At that point, I don't have anything to say. They kept making exactly. statements. And statements and statements. In fact, old Norm Stamper, I said, nigger knocker. That's literal. That's not a metaphor. He said, that's what you do. You grab your nigger knocker and cow, you go upside his head. But old Norm Stamper said, before you get to crack him with that nigger knocker, you say, hey, what do you think, nigger? You tough, nigger? Hmm? 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 You tough? Hmm? You tough as me? You think? Hmm? 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 They would do that sort of thing, like same thing we've heard. Get him from home. What? 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 Oh, what? Ah, and then you go and try and take a sling, and oh man, you know that's you already know how that goes. Like he's got a gun, taser, cuffs, backup. You already know how that's gonna go. We just yeah. do this all the time. Just bait them, bait them, bait them from high school. Bait them, bait them. We already know we got all this waiting for you. We want you to say something to do something, and we can hop on you with both feet. Literally hop on you. Ha ha ha. And then all right, boys, we'll. Clean him up, put him in the car, take him down, and book him for resisting arrest. We'll uh, we'll make it up as we go. We'll add some charges as we're riding along. That was a great one. Maybe we'll pick up your brother on the way. All of that to say, composure. All circumply. That is the most essential component for counter racism. Composure. 
I'm not just going to be, especially with a white person, really with anyone, but I'm not just going to be running off at the mouth. and You can get upset. They will do a lot of things to upset us. That's what this is supposed to do. If you need to exit, get yourself together with an enforcement officer. Obviously, you're not going to be able to exit. So, I mean, then you really got to be able to get it together. Take some breaths and be quiet. You could be dead in the next few moments. It's a shame to have to keep saying that in 2022, but that's what it is. But the main thing, composure. There, you will be lucky to end up with just a felony for losing your composer under those circumstances. Like, my goodness, that would be like maybe the the best outcome. Like you end up as a convicted felon for losing your circum, uh, composure under those conditions. Anywho, uh, I did want to make sure I got in. Man, that portion about suicide. I said that to a cow's listener like verbatim. They were talking about getting a firearm for whatever reason. And I said, man, this was like years before COVID-19. And I said, man, white people have studies that people who purchase firearms, there generally is a substantial rise in the likelihood for suicide or some sort of self-harm. So, you know, I, any gun owners, that would be something to think about. Like, are there any mental health issues for me or anyone who lives in the residence? Like, that's a serious question to answer honestly. Like, oh, okay. If the answer is yes, we should have a serious code about making sure that this goat is properly secured. I think we heard that already. Safe or whatever it is. Children, certainly. But making sure that this is not something that's just easily accessed. And hey, even if it's me, does this mean I either wait or I let other people know so that if I'm having a tough time, they can come and retrieve that firearm and tell them, feeling a little bit better and then they can give it back and everything is all good but I mean that in my view is a big part of being responsible especially if they're saying like wow it seems like there might be a correlation between more black people owning a firearm and more black males committing suicide to me at least that sort of correlation not causation is not surprising at all especially even given what we just heard 24 hours ago, young academic talking about being angry. He said the young black males were angry, skull stomping other black males, angry, angry about the academic situation. Who wouldn't be the killing fields, but angry. I could see that. Corey Pujols, black male, Dunkin Donuts manager. I'm 27. He comes in calling me a nigger. I'm angry. I could easily see that producing a lot of metal said that call in Florida yesterday said the black male came in. They didn't even want to help him. I'm just trying to get documents, make sure I don't have anything on my record. I can't even get any help. They come and get the record and all I got on my sheet is mental health issues. I thought that report was real important. Like that's the sort of thing I would think about. Like if you need a firearm, you say for, you know, personal safety and all of that. So be it. I even hear some people say they need a firearm for race soldiers. I can't imagine that universe just because I don't know anybody who says, man, I successfully diffused a situation with a race soldier because I had a firearm. I don't know anyone. 
where that's the case. I know like some situations with Robert F. Williams and people some time ago, but I mean, you got 14 year olds with drones now. Not sure how much a firearm, how many problems that's going to solve with a race soldier current day and time. I could be in error, but mental health issues and all of that, like that is something serious to consider, especially if you own a firearm, like let me make sure that the mental health of myself and everyone in this residence where there is a firearm or plural firearms, make sure that that has been factored in. And if there are any children, their access to this weapon as well or lack thereof. Lots of codification required with counter violence. Uh, that said, did our time for the broadcast. Hope it was constructive. We should be here on Tuesday. Uh, what's this? Mr. Hawk, Professor uh, Rusty Hawkinson, the Bible told them so. Religion of white supremacy, the two words for the program, Strom Thurmond. South Carolina. Uh, much obliged for folks tuning in live. Hope it was worthy of your Saturday evening spring forward. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. We need high functioning brain computers. Uh, in addition to being sober, if you're out and about, this is not a time to be in confrontations. You don't want to end up being a convicted felon. And you don't want to end up socking somebody where they have a firearm and you don't. Or they have an entire entourage and you don't. Exit. You can call enforcement officials and have them arrest the child rapist and all the rest of it. If you're in a vehicle, you're sober, buckled, not on the cell phone. Uh, just doing the small things to stay as safe as we can under conditions of total terrorism uh, and trying to do little things that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers badge or no that said creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately no name calling cow signing up thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim no brother problem. you're a victim <laughs> Shut I'm a victim up. of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>